0: Hey, hey! Welcome to the Awoken Word Podcast. This is your host, Anu Dristogi. First, a little bit of housekeeping here. This is the first episode of 2019, so Happy New Year to all of you. Hope you all had a great holiday. It uh, was a little bit low-key for me, and uh, I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty much done with 2018 I usually struggle in the first couple of months writing last year or the previous year in anything that I'm signing or dating. Not this year. Uh, I've pretty much said to hell with 2018, so I'm moving along. Anyhow, in 2019, I just want to first of all say thank you to everyone who supported the Awoken Word podcast and has come out to listen and support and, and share your feedback. Really appreciate it. I'm really excited about what's coming in 2019 and I've already got a lot of great things lined up. But before I get into that, I want to share with you one of my New Year's resolutions, which is that I need to stop using the word incredible so much. Listening back to a lot of the episodes in the past few months, I've realized that I use the word incredible a lot. And so I make this commitment to all of you to push this word into the shadows for some time. Anyhow, I'm really excited about this episode because although it was recorded back in late 2018, as the first episode of 2019, I'm very excited to be sharing this particular one because it is extremely timely. For those that don't know, Gillette just very recently launched an ad called, We Believe The Best a Man Can Be. And this ad really focuses in on toxic masculinity and the bad behavior of some or many men And in true modern fashion, this ad has been extremely polarizing. It has been both celebrated and applauded, and it has been ridiculed relentlessly by many people. So it's really been a divisive uh, work of advertising that's both raised a conversation, but also put a lot of people back in uh, kind of a negative tailspin. So here we are in 2019, and once again we find that men, or rather some men, are very much under the microscope, and that's for some really good reason. And that's important because our guest today is Jeff Pereira, and Jeff is quite a remarkable guy. He's quite a remarkable man, and I'm really lucky to have met him because he's actually been a catalyst for me in terms of some of the thinking around issues of men, masculinity. Uh, Jeff and I go quite deep on a number of different topics, as is usually the case, from race to politics, but we do spend a lot of time on this idea of manhood and masculinity, but we're not doing it in just a macro sense. Jeff is actually very forthcoming with his own personal journey and his own personal experiences with his father. What I really like about Jeff is that he is at once both extremely vulnerable and honest in his storytelling, but he's also extremely strong And he's got a really clear sense of both who he is in terms of what his strengths are and the areas that he wants to work on. Beyond some of these topics, we also do touch on a number of other little things. We found that we have this huge mutual love for hip-hop. In fact, after recording the episode, spent another 45 minutes just talking about hip-hop in general and realized that perhaps there's a whole other future episode there. Also, some big shout-outs to folks like Dwayne Morgan and Rod Sharma who come up in this conversation Uh, Shout-outs to The Roots, Black Thought, uh, Logic, The Rapper, Riz Ahmed, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Sebastian Younger, Joe Rogan, uh, and a number of other folks who have been pretty instrumental, I think, in shaping some of the dialogue that's happening out there, but also been uh, some incredible influences and inspirations in my own life in conversations. So enjoy this first episode of 2019. I give you Jeff Pereira. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring, this podcast is my love letter to all of you. <laughs> the Awoken Word Podcast. And we are here on the Awoken Word Podcast with Jeff Pereira. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. So, Jeff, I know you are a motivator, an author, an activist. You speak regularly at schools, at companies, at all sorts of events and gatherings. I know that you have been really involved specifically in the areas of redefining and revisiting all things that are masculinity. You've been on one of my my favorite shows, actually, The, uh, the Agenda on TVO. Mm. Uh, I know you've presented at TEDx a few times. You've won all sorts of awards for your social work in the community. Um, you are inspiring and motivating. And from the first time I met you, I definitely sort of saw you as a gentle giant. I really found it interesting that you've taken this particular direction on, on topics of men and masculinity. And I, I think that your work is particularly important today, perhaps more than ever, at least in the modern era. And it's uh, it's funny in the world of the Harvey Weinsteins and the Me Too movement and the Women's March and all the things that are happening day in, day out. I think that the things that you're doing couldn't be any more important or critical today. So you know, I'm just really appreciative that you're here. Um, In fact, you and I were just talking about this. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. I think it's a little bit of serendipity because many of the conversations I've already had with folks here have kind of led up to this conversation with you. I'm sure at least a number of times I've actually mentioned you specifically. I'm like, yeah, I learned this thing from Jeff Pereira. (laughs) So just having you here, I, I really appreciate. So for all the people out there who don't yet know who you are or aren't familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, you know what? First of all, thank you for creating this space to have these kinds of conversations and for having me. The way I describe myself is I'm a bridge builder. What I mean by that is I grew up, my parents got together through an arranged marriage And it was a troubled marriage. And I was kind of the go-between. You know, like, dad would have to tell mom something, so I'd be the one to kind of shuttle back and forth. And my thing was always growing up being that kind of go-between. And I think that, you know, here I am now, 43, and I'm still trying to be that person between the genders, you know, between people of all genders. Just this kind of, like, how do we find ways to meet each other in the middle? How do we find ways to understand and learn from each other? You know, so speaking of my parents, I have this story that kind of explains like why I do what I do, and it's a bit of a two part. So, you know, I'm sure you've seen The Godfather, yeah, a bunch of times, yeah, right. If you haven't seen it, classic, must watch film. Growing up, at a, up to a certain age, I always thought the film ended when Michael killed those two in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I thought that was the end of the film. The reason is, so. You know how back in the day when people watched television together and we used remote controls and whoever had the remote control is usually the father figure, like you're calling the shots, you know. And so we reached a certain age where we got control of the remote control. My brother is six years younger. So the the Godfather came on one day and I had control of the remote. And I noticed that when that scene came up, my dad left the room. And then I realized, oh, the movie keeps going. So if you remember the film, uh, later on there's a scene where the Don's daughter, Michael's sister. Uh, oh my God, what's her name? I'm blanking out. Yeah, it's so
0: long ago. Oh home. my God.
1: So anyway, so so she's recently married, and it's this you know back in those days it was a very graphic depiction. Films now and entertainment now is much more graphic and raw and quote unquote real. But it was this this, for lack of a better phrase, iconic scene of, you know, he comes home and she's pregnant, and he they get into an argument and he takes out his belt and starts chasing her around the the, the apartment. Eventually, the the action the action goes off scene. They're in the bathroom and you can just hear him whipping and throwing her around in the bathroom. And that was too close to home for my dad because my growing up, my father. Um, was violent towards my mom. So my earliest memories is my mom in bruises at the hand of my dad. Right. So my dad couldn't be in the room, couldn't be present for that with us at a certain age where my brother is six years younger. So it, the violence stopped when I was around seven. So my brother wasn't witness to it, but I was. Like my dad had that kind of energy where you could you could read. He's in another room, and you could even feel his anger. Like it's it's coming, right? At something or or somebody. So that was it for me growing up. But I had this pivotal moment. My mom was in the shotgun seat. I'm in the back seat. We're in a parking lot, some mall, right? And my dad's outside the car and he's arguing with a drunk white guy. And it's intense. It's an intense argument. My dad gets into the car, slams the door behind him and has his hands on the steering wheel. And the drunk guy's outside, like, banging on the window. Come on, you, Packy. Like, you know, banging on the window, trying to edge him to come out. And I looked at my dad, and my dad was shaking. But not the kind of trembling that I was used to seeing him at home, because he would shake in a rage. Mm-hmm. That kind of – I'm very thankful. There's a few times in my life where I've been that kind of angry. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I can't say that I understand his anger, but – That kind of trembling rage, you know? But I realized he's not angry, he's scared. That's why he's trembling. And I was like, who is this guy that at home he's this Godzilla? Mm -hmm. But now he's meeting someone who's his match, so to speak, physically and etc. And he's trembling. And eventually my mom cracked open the window. And started yelling at the guy, you know, you get out of here, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) And so the guy kind of, I think he kind of came to and realized, oh shit, there's a wife and kid in the car Okay, and he left, right? So that moment shook me because I grew up on one hand, having a firsthand account to an extreme example of what women and girls have to navigate. But I also had this experience where I was like, my dad's broken. He's a broken guy. And at an early age, I was probably like 10 years old. I know that some of this stuff is like, wow, that seems like really advanced for young kids. Young kids are witness to so much oh, stuff. yeah. And they're dealing with complex thought that you think they're just like all about like bubble gum and like unicorns. No, man. They're dealing with heavy shit at a certain age as a young person. So, you know, one of the things I talk about with people is when did childhood end for you? Meaning cause there's a certain point where you become in this society a man or a woman. Right. For, for a lot of women, that moment when girlhood ends and now I'm a woman is that moment where they realize people are looking at me differently. Like I'm not just a little girl. Now I'm a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Or I'm, I'm, I'm a sex object kind of thing. The example of that really quick is a friend of mine told a story. She's in Massachusetts and she remembers being a little girl and she's at the mall and she's in like her little spring dress, you know, like little girls twirling around and she's holding the door open for people as they walk into a certain part of the mall. And she holds the door open for this guy walking through. And she looks up and realizes it's the weather guy. You know, like the local weather guy, the yeah, like yeah, celebrity, yeah. right? Yeah. So she looks up and she's like, Oh my God, it's like so and so the weather guy. But then she realized his gaze, his, his, the way he was looking at her was not kind of like, hello, little girl. Like, hello, obviously you're a fan of me. He was looking at her legs and looking at her the way I think, you know, like, you know, someone would look at a hungry person would look at a meal. And she just had this moment of being, oh. And then she became very conscious of her body and her growing long legs. And, you know, mm-hmm. so that, that childhood ended. Right. For me, it's funny. Like you and I were talking about like action figures and toys before this. I remember walking home with my friend. Um, I can't remember what age. We were young. And we we're talking about our Transformer dolls, right? And he's like, yeah, but you don't play with yours anymore. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, no, no, of course not." And I remember bow, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember going home. I remember going home, man, and taking my um it was one of the Autobots. It was one of the kind of like, you know, like the not the originals, like one of the, like the next level, like the, the Medic Autobots. It was okay. the one that turned into a fire truck. And I remember putting it on the shelf being like, oh, "Okay. I guess I don't play with that anymore." And that's the time where for me, so my story of becoming from boy, like boyhood ending mm-hmm. is very different. For a lot of young men, it's like you go from being a little boy all smiley and happy in the photos to all of a sudden posing, mean mugging. Yeah, you know, like something snaps. Like you don't hold your stuffy anymore. Now you hold a war. You hold a war doll. Yeah, and not criticizing any of that, you know. But uh yeah, so that's long story short. That's kind of like. That's 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 me, man. That's like why I got into this work. I grew up in a neighborhood that was a so-called priority neighborhood, um, the Jenna Finch community, a uh, lot of folks, social, economic, racial challenges, a lot of poverty issues. So young people from all around the world who are refugees and immigrants. And I realized we're all struggling with the same stuff. It looks different. Like if you're from Jamaica or if you're Italian or what have mm-hmm. you. Um, but it's similar stuff. These ideas, and and unfortunately, here in 2018, we're grappling with the same issues, the same stuff. And whether you're, you know, you're 10 years old or you're 50 years old, if you're a man in the society, a young man, a boy, you're wrestling with stuff.
0: You and I were talking about this before. It feels like we're grappling with the same stuff, but we hadn't really finished the fight in the first place. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like it just came back. It's Mm -hmm. just never. Mm It's never really been resolved by us. I think that we have been staying away from the real painful, honest conversations for a really long time, right? Like whether it's an individual having to reflect on what's, what's ailing them or whether it's a society or an entire gender or whatever, like we, we just have to kind of come to terms with that. And there's a lot of people, obviously it's preaching to the converted. Cause you're one of the few people that's out there and, and, and fighting the good fight for all of us. But we never really resolved it. like So it shouldn't even surprise us that this is still happening.
1: I think you know part of it, we talked about this before too, man. It's like it's this moment where we've been kind of standing on the edges looking at all this stuff, sweeping things under the rug, stuffing things in the closet, in the garage. And now it's this point where it's not that things have gotten worse. It's just that everything's surfaced. Mm-hmm. We see people for who they are. So it's like we're being pushed into this middle ground. And we didn't walk in on our own terms. We've kind of like stumbled into it. Yeah. It's like, you know, we're on the edges of the Grand Canyon. Now we've all fallen in. Now we're all just like stumbling all over each other. And now we're forced to have these kinds of conversations. But we're not we're still not having it in a good way. It's still this us versus them. Yeah. You know, the, the, the way we have discourse now is, you know, you sit down with someone. Like, whether it's online or it's in person. And it's not really sitting down as in, like, I want to discourse with you, to have a discourse with you. It's like, we're going to argue now. Yeah. And your mentality on both sides is, before we begin, I'm right, you're wrong. Yeah. So let's go. Now, there's certain things that are non-negotiable, man. Like, I mean, like, I believe everyone, the human rights are applicable to everyone, you know, and that you taking at the expense of another person's humanity? Like no. That's like that's a solid line. Don't cross that line. That's that's non-negotiable. But having mm-hmm. said that, I think part of the challenge is like when when two people sit down or like face off online or whatever, we draw this line in the sand. But the problem with that is like it's a solid line. Yeah. And there's no middle ground. So there's no room to kind of meet halfway and it, the feeling is like, "Well, why would?" And I, I believe me, I'm not saying I'm not saying sit here and empathize with a neo-Nazi. I'm not saying, like, you know, like, become best friends with them. But at the same time, when you draw this solid line, there's no room to invite them in Mm -hmm. to a different perspective. It's kind of like, you know, when you're driving and you're switching lanes, you have certain lanes that are a solid line for a reason. But there's times where it becomes a dash line.
0: That's a great analogy. And the, the,
1: the idea is, like, I'm not trying to hold people accountable. It's I'm inviting you to come and see this perspective and meet me halfway. But meeting me halfway is like with respect.
0: It's not at the expense of my humanity. It feels like you're giving up something to even Mm. listen to them, which isn't like having a conversation doesn't mean that you actually have to give up any sense of self or agency or or anything. It's just opening yourself up to the possibility that there's more to this, that you, you could know But you know, I, don't necessarily flat out suggest you should go and hug a Nazi or a neo-Nazi necessarily. (laughs) But at the same time, part of the reason that the world is as polarized as it is today is because at some point that guy who is now a neo-Nazi was not a neo-Nazi and some experience in his life pushed him one way or another. And at that point in time, if someone had had the right conversation with him, he may not have ended up in the right, in the same place. And there might be some salvation yet for him. I think I don't know if I'm the judge to say some people are beyond salvation, but um, yeah. you know there are people out there who have been you neo know, Nazis on the on the topic, who have been you know white supremacists going around beating up you know colored kids all the time, to actually now going and turning around other people and helping them avoid that those footsteps because it's really understanding their own self deprecation and their own hate and their own internal rage. But it took a conversation to stop that, not like a, you know another fist. You know, man, I, and I, I think this this
1: like. I think about that a lot. Well said, man. It's like, you know, you have to choose your battles in life. Mm -hmm. There are certain conversations where this this is not the conversation for me. But there are moments where there is a window of opportunity. And it's not, I think part of the challenge, like, you know, as someone who's a public speaker or a public educator, whatever you want to call me. I do a lot of the one and done things. So I'll go into a space, I'll go into a corporate space, or a high school, or a campus, or a conference, and I do my talk, and I'm out. I will not get to see the the ramifications or the the seeds I've planted. Like you know, I don't have someone, I don't always have someone come and walk to walk up to me and be like, "Wow, man, you just changed my perspective on all this." It does happen Mm -hmm. from time to time, but my point is, you do it knowing. That I've planted a seed and you walk away, and maybe in five minutes, five years, who knows that seed will take root. part of the challenge is okay i'm I'm starting to use a lot of gardening analogies lately i don't garden okay like, so i do I use driving analogies i've been driving for ye like decades yeah i don't know shit about cars, man like <laughs> I, know, I just know how to open the door, how to like stop one like if i'm driving it. Those you are know, two of the most Bluetooth. important things you need to know. Oh, it's yeah. all sh- you know, put, put yeah. gas in it. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much it. Temperature, whatever you need. But like how it actually works, I don't know, man. So I use driving analogies and I use gardening analogies. One of the gardening analogies I use right now is how, you know, we're, we're all kind of like trying to plant seeds. But the thing is you got to think about the soil, mm-hmm. right? Because you can have the seed you want to plant. And by all means, if a person stands up and says, I'm a human being, I'm a value, I have this problem. I'm a woman and I'm experiencing devaluation as a human being. The whole community should go gather around. What can we do? Oh my god, what's happening? What are you talking about? That's not the world we live in. Right. You and I know that. So it's kind of like planting seeds. We some of us look at it like we're tossing seeds. You know, use this inclusive language. You toss that into a corporate space, for example. Like you're force-feeding people. Use this language. Gender pronouns, right? But if the environment, so the soil, the environment, the garden is the soil. A garden is like where we produce and create, whether it's you create products, you create community, you create all these different things. If the soil is dead, if the soil is dry, throwing those seeds is pointless. Those seeds are just going to stay on the surface. One of them might slip in and might start to grow, but not really. Yeah. For the, for the seeds to be able to take root and grow, the soil needs to be nurtured. So we got to nurture these conversations, man. We got to kind of like get in there and get that work, you know, and do that work to have the hard conversations. So it's like, I need to create an environment where you understand why this is important. I can just tell you something's important. This is why it's important. So it gets back to like, you know, I was saying before with you, like we're in an era where it's a, it's a, a, empathy, deficit mm-hmm. people are all about it's like survival it's like survival the fittest out here man it's everyone's like i'm out for myself and my people i'm out for me so i'm out for i just care about canada or i just care about white people or mm-hmm. i just care about like i'm a man men are under attack with this me too stuff i just care about me like you mm-hmm. know survival and for me it's kind of like the line i use is that this isn't the day of our reckoning this can be the day of our awakening and so for a lot of us as things surface for people, for example, people of color, LGBTQ people, you know, women go down the line. Their truths are surfacing. Here is the stories. Here is what we, you know. I am in the music scene, or I am in the engineering field, or I am a reporter in 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 media. Mm-hmm. Here is what we have to go through. Whether it's John Gomeshi or Bill Cosby, and those those kind of like horrific stories surface. But the reality, man, is like most of us as guys. The spectrum of men who've been disappointing or hurtful or harmful, I'm not talking, the problem is we all think Gameshi, Cosby, yeah, yeah. Weinstein. It doesn't have to be at that extent. Yeah. No, and it's yeah. like a lot, of, most of us have done something we regret. Now, is there consequence for that? There can be sometimes. A lot of times there isn't. A lot of times it's people just kind of look the other way or women just kind of like bite their tongue on that experience and we go on. But for a lot of us as men, we have regret and it becomes fear. You know it's not just with, with with gender, it's like white folks right now, it's this fear of you know the regret of the guilt and that tr- all it all comes in down yep. to fear. Yep. this is all about fear, man. and so it's like I think if we can get to a place where the meeting people halfway is like, I'm inviting you into a place where there's a potential for repair, mm-hmm. you know, a potential for healing. Um, so if you meet me halfway in the middle. We can have that conversation, right? You know, like I'm I'm here to have a conversation with any white person. There's some people who are people of color I respect it. And are like, yo, go read a book, go get yourself educated. It's not my work to educate you. I I respect that, but the my humanity comes when they repair their humanity. Mm-hmm. So I'm willing to meet them halfway if they're willing to meet me halfway with that kind of respect, and we can build some trust. And then we can kind of go from there, man. But it's like, it's it's, it's a slippery slope. I get it. It's very delicate.
0: So uh, let's, uh, I mean, this is something that uh, we chat about a bit. And I want to kind of go into this. Now's as good a time as any. Mm. Let's back up for a moment. So we met back in March, 2017, you know, when you had come by, you know, a uh, company I was working at, you had uh, come by there and you were doing some great work in terms of talking about. Uh, men and masculinity mm. and revisiting unconscious bias. And uh, I guess in that context, I'd, I would say I opened for you. Uh, I was actually performing uh, yep. my, my spoken word piece, Baby Girl, that I'd written for my daughter along with the video. So that's how we met. And then it's funny because when I found out that you were actually going to be speaking, I heard your name, Jeff Pereira. And having known a lot of people from uh, who are going Goa as a state in India that uh, was a former Portuguese colony, I instantly thought that you were going. Then I saw you when you came there and I'm like, oh, this guy's not going, this guy's black. That's interesting. I've never met a black man with prayer as a last name. Maybe he's got, you know, some Portuguese background or something in there. So I'm filling in all these blanks. I'm creating an entire story about you. I don't even know you. I've I've just only seen you for the first time. Then we met and you told me that you're actually Sri Lankan. So I was just, I felt like a chump, to be honest, right? Like I felt like who am I going about making up all these stories about people that I don't even know? And yet, you know, I thought this had probably the first few times that we had met. I mean, you do for all intents and purposes to the untrained or even to my eye, you know, to many people on the outside, you appear to be a black man. And I would imagine in your skin, you probably navigate the world and in much of North America or much of the West that you're going around, probably much of the world period, the world sees you as a black man. Mm -hmm. And so, You go through the life, at least outwardly, uh, many of the experiences that a black man might, and yet you're not black, um, you know, quote unquote. So I'm just curious to understand, like, what has your life experience been like? Because it it just feels like you have a unique vantage point.
1: Yeah, man. You know, like when I describe myself as a bridge builder, part of that is, I think, An actual bridge, I would—I don't know, no idea how you build one. Like I'm always like, how do you build that shit? Yeah, right. (laughs) But like, part of it is looking at it and going, I see the gap. And for me, like, part of it is—I've had this really interesting experience of being able to kind of navigate and see different perspectives. So I am Sri Lankan. I'm Sinhalese. So our community in Sri Lanka, we are the oppressive majority. That's basically you know, let's just name it, has attempted genocide of the Tamil community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks like myself who were born here, we don't directly have the kind of perspectives and, you know, toxic attitudes. We either inherit it from our families or through the communities, right? And there's also folks here who don't have those perspectives and are like, how can we find ways to make amends and fix this and, and work on it? So I have the perspective of being someone of privilege in that respect. This other thing you talk about is, so like, so many times in my life, like, people will see my name first before they see me. Like, I remember back in the day when I go for job interviews, it was always hilarious. I'd be in that that room, that kind of waiting room, and the person will walk out, be like, Jeff Pereira, looking at the white guy. And then I stand up. Mm -hmm. He's expecting some Portuguese dude. And he's like, what? Okay. You know, trying like in real time. All right. Here we go, Jeff. Good to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um you're like, who is this guy? What's going on? What what are you made of, man? So it's like I I've been called the N word many times in my life by people, you know. So I have I have unfortunately um a taste of the negative experiences, right? I also like some of these like again, stereotypes that might be perceived as like a plus, but tie into some of these kind of like exotifications of, of 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 people of color. So in this case, the exotification of black men, this kind of dehumanization, like that that they're not humans, they're like they're this animal human mix, like they're they're great runners, they're physical endurance, or they must be great in bed. You must have a big dick. All this mm-hmm. kind of yeah. stuff. So all that kind of things, those things are kind of thrown at me. And then also you have all this the the hatred of, of black people. This, this construction of black people are less than, and it's the, the human, the dehumanization in a different way where they're less than I get that thrown at me too. So all that to say, I have had a life experience of seeing different sides. Mm -hmm. So seeing my mom's experience, seeing my dad's experience, like how, My dad felt broken and powerless. So in those moments, and we talked about this again before too, that the quickest way for me to attain power is through violence. And I saw my dad kind of demonstrate why that was not a way forward. And I I saw my mom's experience, what she had to navigate. Um, Seeing what it's like for black people in this Mm -hmm. country, in Canada, people being like, oh, you know, can't. And look, obviously there are, there are, there on the surface is a what feels like a healthier environment around race here in Canada. I think that narrative, that bubble has been burst in 2018 more so than ever. Yep. And what's really interesting, not to go off topic here, man, but like I was thinking about this and I jotted it down because I wanted to make sure I brought this up with you. We're in a period of grieving right now because it's like, you know, grief has a lot to do with love, mm-hmm. right? When I love someone, that leads to my grieving. So, you know, I hear that a good friend of mine lost someone. Was it someone you're close to, right? I care about you. I'm sad for the person who passed away, but I care about you. My love for you will intensify my feeling about this situation if I know this person was really close to hmm. you. Like it's a, a, a immediate family member, distant relative. So anyway, so we have this moment of grieving right now because our, our idea of canada our idea of the world we're grieving the loss of that but what we're really grieving is we're grieving we're grieving the illusion that we had we had this illusion that mm. canada was this like right. yeah oh this lovely country it's everything's so great but then we're seeing and you know obviously i'm not going i'm not even gonna say her name but there's a person running it's fine to say her name, but like there's a person running yeah. for the mayor of uh, mayorship of Toronto who really doesn't have a shot, but she's running to normalize um these extreme white nationalist mm-hmm. perspectives. And I think people are like, Oh, she's that's that's horrific, that's horrible. But there are people you know like, but she doesn't have a chance. But there are people who get it and yeah. are like the fact that she And she has, will likely come
0: in third. Yes. Yeah.
1: So when I say she's a distant, it's, it's, it's significant yeah. and people are grieving. What's, this is not my Toronto. This is your Toronto. This is not my Canada. This is mm-hmm. your Canada. So it's waking up and grieving this, like, I've been a fool all this time.
0: So on the, on the topic of analogies, this one just hit me. Um, mm. We were upstairs and uh, so we have a little aquarium upstairs that I got for the kids and It's interesting because I was cleaning the fish tank about three or four days ago and there's this uh, siphon plastic tube that you use to basically like vacuum stuff out of the gravel. And, when you don't clean the tank, assuming you clean off all the algae and let's just pretend that some progressive politics has been scrubbing the algae of the tank.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Right.
0: Eventually all the shit just settles and it settles Mm. in the gravel. But the moment you stir that up and you realize just how dirty that gravel is, like I was, it was sucking up like shit and like carcasses of old snails that had died and and were long forgotten. And I couldn't believe just how dirty it was and just how terrible a pet owner I am. But (laughs) It was <laughs> filthy and you know. to your point, I believe that even in this country, we believe that we are on some high horse and we are mm-hmm. morally superior in some way. We are not like the cousin that's you know south of the border. But many of these things are still festering between the crevices here too and I think it's partly because when somebody has an opinion we don't like, mm-hmm. we think it's unpopular. And if you have an opinion that might even be, hey, I have an issue with immigration mm. – that might even be a legitimate concern that this person has. And let's just say that this happens to be a middle-aged white man. Sure. He yeah, has yeah, yeah. a legitimate concern. Yep. Yeah. The rest of the so- so-called now progressive left has basically ganged up on him and said, you're a bigot, you're racist. This is not how we think in Canada. There's no place for this kind of thinking and whatnot. And now, so this guy doesn't even have an opportunity to share what he's thinking. And some other iteration of this guy now turns into some white nationalist or whatnot, Mm -hmm. only because no one was willing to even have that conversation. And I believe here, while there's many things personally, I I do appreciate and love about Trudeau as a prime minister and as a Mm -hmm. leader. I think he's done some incredibly progressive things and he's took some incredible stands. There are some things about his leadership in this particular government that I find just appalling. Mm -hmm. I find it ridiculous and insane that – Without any consultation of the public, he went and spent $4.5 billion to buy a pipeline no one wanted, mm-hmm. and that could be shooting upwards of, of $9 billion. They did, if anything, like a token nod to the aboriginal communities that this pipeline was going to walk through in terms of consultation. The fact yeah. that we followed through on this, this deal for the LAV-6s with uh, these armored tanks that were selling to the Saudis, a $15 billion deal – The Trudeau government closed that deal, albeit the previous government opened it and brokered that deal. And what I've found just incredibly disappointing and just actually, frankly, disgusting is that in both cases, whether it's the Trans-Canada Pipeline Mm. or whether it's the Saudi arms deal, Mm. the one scapegoat that Trudeau has fallen back on is we need to protect our reputation as a place to do business, as a country that will honor its word in doing business. Mm. So- We also have a supposed commitment to human rights and the sanctity of of human life, right? We also go on record and say that we are progressive in in matters of the environment. And yet you have done the exact opposite in in those cases. But what I think has happened, and I think Trudeau is sort of a, a symptomatic case of this, He's done some really great things that Mm -hmm. on the surface have pacified some things and have moved us forward, I think, as a society. I'm not not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think he's done some tremendous things. But at the same time, some of the hidden muck in the gravel of this fish tank that we are all swimming in is still there and surfacing now more and more because you've got... You got these crazy fish like you know, Trump and Nigel Farage, uh, right-leaning elements in all these different countries that are just stirring it all up. But they didn't create the situation; they've just now identified the situation and they're in just wrecking shit. And yeah, and man. and someone's making money while they're doing
1: it. Yeah, man, absolutely. Like it's like I think so. If I were to if I were to ask, like you know. Again, my 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 bag is masculinity. That's what mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. So, like, when I ask people, you know, I'll say, close your eyes, and I want you to envision, you know, a Russian man, a Jamaican man, a, you know, a, a South African man. Go down the line, a Canadian man. Like, other than the stereotype of lumberjack sure, yeah, yeah. jacket yeah. and like an axe and like drinking a molson Canadian, like, what does that mean? So, because of that. Some people have a narrative of what that is, but because there's this kind of vagueness to it, that allows people to apply what they want to apply to it, right? So they'll apply certain narratives of like, oh, you know, there's Canadian values, and what does that mean? Basically, it's like code for like, you know, like white, you know, conservative-leaning kind of perspectives. Or it's this narrative of someone who is white, but is progressive and open-minded. And I think that, you know, we can we can when we speak in truths and we talk honestly we can say on one side here's a horrible person like our narrative this is a horrible person who's doing who's done some good things or here's a good person who's doing some things we need to talk about sure yeah. and i think being this this idea of our reckoning versus our awakening it's really an opportunity to step back and go look as a nation as a person we admire whatever it is as people as a as a as a, a gender or as a race there are things that we need to have an honest conversation about that doesn't mean i'm dismissing you as a person or what have you mm-hmm. so i think we can learn to have those nuanced complicated conversations about each other and part of that's being brave to have the courageous conversations and again like we we're saying earlier it's been sweep it under the rug. Let's not talk about it, and things pile up and pile up and pile up. The analogy we can have like a, a jam analogy here. I mean, yeah, the yeah. like, Analogy of like, jamming, but like you know this idea of you know kids stuffing their like lunch containers, Rubbermaid containers. They're like you know mildew like. You know, f- gross things are growing, infesting um, containers from their uneaten lunches in the closet. And at some point, they're going to get caught. It's going to kind of stink. Parents going to open the closet and find the whole kind of the whole mess. There was, um, and I forget their name, but they were on, this person was a guest on the Alec Baldwin podcast. Okay. Here's the thing. And he's a NPR host. And he used this line in 2000, I believe it was it 2016 or 15 that I loved. And he said that this moment in time is a manifestation of the inevitable. And that rocker world, man, that's exactly what this is. It's all this stuff coming to now. It's a place where we're seeing it. The analogy, you probably heard me say this, that I like to use around that is it's like, we've been living in this big house, like big brother. Mm -hmm. Some of us live in the basement. Some of us live in the, in the top floor. Um, Some of us have been saying that for decades, this house is infested. Uh, there's mice, mice mm-hmm. shit everywhere. People who are living in the better rooms are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I've never yep. seen that. Mm-hmm. And then one day they're in the kitchen and they turn on the lights at the middle of the night and they see the mice scatter and they're like, Oh shit, this house is infested. And the other people are like, yeah, we've been telling you that for decades, man. So now you're at this point of now the lights are on, right? So we need more light bulb moments. That's what it is. We're, and this moment in time is a light bulb moment we either go back to turning off the lights and just going back to our corners of the house and the status quo, or we lean into a hard conversation of owning our shit. Right. I think this is a time of owning our shit as men. Mm-hmm. We need to own our thing. Brene Brown, who I quote till the end of time, an amazing social work professor, who's a brilliant speaker, TED TED Talk speaker, um, talks about vulnerability and courage and leadership. She had this line in talking about the the racial tensions in America. You know, you think about like in Germany, how they have Holocaust memorial um, things everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things that unfortunately we are reminded today that you need to have these things here and visible. We need to keep telling these stories because you are going to repeat what you don't remember, Mm -hmm. what you choose to forget or ignore. So we need to have these vivid reminders to kind of – these kind of placeholders for us to remember if we don't keep things on track, this is how it can veer off. But in America, we can say North America, we have not owned the story as far as race, nope. racial reality here. So the world looks at us like – especially you know, the obvious example is the states. And again, like you and I talked about Canada as well. But people look at the states and like, you guys need to own your shit about the racial tensions. And now it's blown up. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know we can talk about how there 's a certain orange character down in the states who 's taken advantage of that of that that yes, yeah, yeah, but it's so brene brown 's line is like own the story or the story will own you because if you spend your time running away from the story, the story owns you versus stopping, turning around, facing it, and you rewrite the narrative
0: yeah, this is actually something i I, I talked about a little bit with uh, Dwayne Morgan when he was mm. in. And man, that brother is wise. Anyone would be better off for spending even a few minutes with him. But, um, this idea that everyone has this story, like you and I walk in into a room. And first of all, to my earlier point about making up this whole crazy narrative about you being, uh, going and then black (laughs) and then finding out you're Sri Lankan. We all make these stories up because we have these biases. We hear a name, we see a person, we instantly start to fill in the gaps ourselves, But we all have a story, like you're 43, I'm 40, we walked in, we now have a collective 83 years of of human experience, right? (sighs) And so we are 83 years meeting in this moment, Mm -hmm. right? We're not just like, we are two people, but there's also two stories. But if you don't like the stories, and you don't like chapter one or chapter three, it's not finished yet. The book is not completely written. It's not the last chapter. You might have screwed up. You might have fucked up something way earlier in life. You have time to change it now. And that's for an individual. That's for a society. And I think part of what's missing today in these conversations, and and, and because I end up interacting with people of all walks of life and end up very comfortably having conversations that make a lot of people awkward. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. <laughs> but now a middle-aged white man has trouble expressing legitimate concerns that touch on race or immigration or any other number of subjects, or masculinity, or Me Too, or whatnot. And so, still in most of the world, a middle-aged white man is at the top of the food chain, Mm. from a position of privilege, both being male, being white, if they happen to be in a higher social class, Mm. you know, then there's all those factors there. And yet, they've got this ironic disadvantage that they can't actually express something that's a legitimate concern. And we don't spend enough time abstracting and removing the person from the issue. Mm-hmm. So if I make a good point, it shouldn't matter what the color of my skin is, what gender I am, what part of the world I live in. A good point or a good idea is a good idea is a good idea. But we somehow conflate the two. And then the same point being made, you know, perhaps even by someone who is a black woman, for example. She might be saying the same thing for 20 years about mm-hmm. her experience. And the moment it's recognized by a white woman in a position of popularity or who's famous or whatnot, all of a sudden that claim is now legitimate. So it's the same claim. It's not even that individual's truth, but now we're giving it more weight. Um, In the same way, I find it's actually unhelpful to, to be white today and not be able to have an honest conversation about something that's actually bugging you. So immigration, I think is a legitimate topic of concern on one hand this country, and the US for that matter, none of the industrialized West is going to survive if it doesn't have immigration coming in. Because the skill sets, the uh, the, the energy, the absolutely. youth, all the things that come in are absolutely critical. Like Canada would probably be in a net decline population-wise. It doesn't have the skills to have all the, the doctors, all of the engineers, mm-hmm. all the people in media, all the people that are just doing every sort of thing in society. And yet, We're also on the precipice of potentially starting to hit some real numbers of people coming up who've tried to get into the U.S. and can't find asylum there anymore. And we're probably going to see more of them coming into Canada. I had a a good friend of mine who's a refugee lawyer in Calgary, Raj Sharma. Uh, Shout out to you, Raj he was talking about the whole, you know, this crisis around people kind of coming into Canada and border crossing and whatnot. We've mm. never seen the numbers that the US is seeing. We've never seen the numbers, even the fraction of the numbers that Western Europe seeing. And the moment that many people show up, we're going to be forced to go from a, a philosophical discussion on whether or not we like people coming into our country to how are we even going to just logistically handle this? Where are these people going to live? What does that mean for our livelihoods and our real estate prices and whatnot? Now I think I have a little bit more, freedom in society today to say that because I'm a brown skinned man. Yes. But I know many white guys that want to have that conversation or even white women that want to have that conversation, but they don't feel comfortable. And I think that's unfortunate because now it's a legitimate concern that's not being addressed. So then you start to bury that and it resurfaces Mm and in, in other ways.
1: It's, you know what, man, it's like I have, I definitely have a lot of compassion around that. Right. Because look, some people are like, oh boo hoo, like you know, let me drink on those white tears. And I get that too, I respect mm-hmm. that that yep. perspective. Like, you know, again, forty three, I've worked a number of office like jobs and office environments throughout my life. Almost always I'm if not the only person of color, one of a very few people of color in the office. You you and I I was telling you that story way back in the day, the uh before killing me softly blew up the fujis were opening for the roots and they were on tour i've seen the roots like five or six times
0: man i've never seen them i am so jealous that's
1: back in the day like i'm talking about like i haven't seen them in like maybe at least 12 years i saw them a bunch back and i'm sure even to this day i have to say seed
0: 2.0 is probably in my humble opinion one of the greatest all-time soul tracks ever i love that track (laughs) Yo, Black Thought is one of the greatest MCs of all time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Heavily underrated.
1: Anyway, so they were, the Fugees were opening for the Roots. Now, on the streets, people were already playing Killing Me Softly. But that song was just blowing up. So when they came to Toronto, they flipped it. And this is a testament to the Roots. The Fugees be, became the closing act. And wow. the Roots opened for them. That's they, humility. They, they knew what time it was. Yeah. Like people were coming to this show to see y'all. Yeah. Respect, yeah, we're still getting paid. it's all good, I mean I don't know how they broke down the 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 revenue stuff, but so a friend of mine i was i, I was i had a friend who was from uh Newfoundland who was in Toronto uh studying film at york, and um so this is like culture shock being here right mm-hmm. um but york her program was mostly white, so it was still comfortable spaces and she you know i so her and um, my friend Wayne, who's a black black guy, and myself, I bought us three tickets, and I told her, "Yo, I'm, I got you a ticket. You're coming w- with me to this show." She's super excited. I yeah, can't wait. Yeah. Whatever the day of the show, I go to the. I I pull up. I'm in the car. I go and get to get uh, my friend, and she's in the house with her roommate, and she's like, "I I'm just not feeling well. I don't think I can go. I'm not. I'm like, what." Like, what do you, what do you mean? You just, no, I just, I don't, I don't know. if And I knew it was, I knew it, I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. It's was like, girl, you're coming with me to this show because I knew it was going to change your life. Because i have seen The Roots before. I'm excited to see the Fugees, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So I dragged her to the show and she's one of a few, this is back when hip hop shows were mostly people of color. -hmm. A handful of white folks. Now it's the other way around. It's mostly white folks who can afford the tickets, and there's a handful. I mean, I'm not talking about like underground shows and whatever, but she was one of a few white folks in a sea of black, brown faces. She was petrified. Yeah. As the show went on, she got more comfortable. By the time the Fuji's came on, she was jumping up and down with everybody else, you know? That's amazing. And it's like, I could have been like, White ass person. I'm just like, yeah, you, yeah. you couldn't dismiss it. Home. Yeah, good yeah. for you. I'll go. I'll call up a friend last minute. But no, I was like, you know what? I get it. I get it. I'm not making apologies. Not making excuses. I don't. I'm not saying she was a racist. I'm saying it was one of those moments where she, one of the few moments where, when it comes to race, she knew it was like to be an extreme minority in the space. Mm-hmm. The power differential, the dynamic. Um, as a woman, she's familiar with a lot of that stuff too. But as a white woman, it's different than, say, a woman of color, like some of the stuff she's had to navigate. And that's not to diminish, diminish, or devalue. Like, I'm not putting kind of like value holders on it to be like, like I'm holding space for all her experiences and also holding space that that's led to her to a, this moment that I hope became. An eye opener for her, right? To like see like this is what it's like. So you have people across this country who are like, "Man, what is Canada going to become? What's Canada becoming?" And that's that can be a very loaded statement, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But what do you mean by that? Like, well, you know, our our perspectives, our values are going to shift. Okay, what do you mean by that? So there's an opportunity to have a conversation. Where you can kind of own some of the stuff you're like you're coming to terms and realizing oh that is a little problematic or that's a little yeah. fucked up, but also like there's also moments where I think white folks can have those hard conversations with each other, mm-hmm. courageous conversations. There are times where you know you might be comfortable to have that conversation with someone like me around. There's times where you need to have it with each other. Yeah, and that's what that, what I mean by that is the same thing with us as men is i am very fortunate like i've 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 been in and helped create spaces where, as men, we can sit around and quote unquote ask the dumb questions, say the dumb things, yeah, and I think you need to have that because you gotta we gotta talk about this stuff. Yeah, yeah you gotta get it out there, I get it, and for it's sure. like you we we can sit here and just tell white people, you know you need to so again throwing the seeds at dry soil, <laughs> you need to just get it, get yeah. it with the times, and those Pushing down and suppressing those attitudes or those perspectives is not going to help. It's got to come out. Now, I'm not saying let's just have a hurtful, painful conversation. Just like, just like, just hit everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, so black people, indigenous people, people of color can go through all that pain all over again. I get that. I'm not, you know, sitting, sitting here and saying at our expense. Let's have that conversation. White people can't talk about racism. They can talk about white privilege they can talk about white supremacy they can talk about what it's like to navigate that shit right so it's like so really quick it's like a white person can turn to another one and be like man i used to use the n word back in the day or i had these kind of attitudes my my friend can tell that story hopefully she does of how i didn't want to go to that concert it's not that you know it's not that i hate black folks it's that i had not dealt with the attitudes and the opinions and the perspectives mm-hmm. I had, and they surfaced in that moment, and it was a holy shit moment for yeah. me. It's like, oh wow, yeah. I got a lot to to work on here, and that was like a very unique experience to do it, where I just like <laughs> threw into a room with a thousand, you know, people of color, like working out, girl. Work yeah. It yeah. Out. Anyway,
0: yeah, no, I, I mean, look, you you hit on a lot of stuff there. So first of all, because you kind of came back to the seeds, so just so you realize, like every now and then, one of those seeds in that that arid, dry, cracked soil actually lands. Yeah, so like yeah. the, part of the reason that we're here, I think to some degree, part of the reason I've even gotten, you know, a woken word off the ground is having met you uh, and some of the perspectives and conversations that. that you opened my mind up to that were background noise for me, but they weren't really a focal point. And mm. I think having met you, I realized all this stuff. So like I, I you know, I do owe you a lot of thanks for kind of, kind of waking me up in some ways. And, you know, here we are all, all, all this time later. Right. So, you will probably never even hear from most of the people who you've had an impact on but every now and then somebody might actually just raise a hand and say like look you know Jeff thank you so i'm saying thank you to you i appreciate it man i appreciate it um it, i i think in that situation with your friend at the the fuji's concert you are definitely a bigger man than perhaps i was in a in a situation that that i kind mm-hmm. of uh, confronted not too long after we had met And I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of detail. I actually talked about this with Dwayne Morgan a couple of weeks ago. But long story short, you know, we were in a a, for a work thing. We were at a supper club, I guess. So it was like part restaurant, part nightclub. And after the the team thing, it turned into this just absolutely bumping club. And I didn't realize because we were in a private dining room. And then all of a sudden you look outside and there was this just absolutely sick, off the hook, old school hip hop set playing. Like I hadn't heard something like this in 10 years. Like every single track was so perfectly mixed and so mm. perfectly timed and the crowd was just going crazy. And then it just kind of hit me. I'm like, huh, this entire crowd is black. Wow. And it was like, you know, maybe eight, 900 people, maybe even a thousand. Like this place was huge. Mm. So I went out from the, the dining room. I went out, I, I found the the DJ booth. I just, I just had to pay respect to the the DJ. I'm like, you know, bro, this, this set's off the hook. Like just keep doing a thing come back, kind of you know working my way back into the room because I wanted to actually get some of the folks that i was I was there with like come out and dance on the way I accidentally bumped some six foot eight three hundred and fifty pound dude, I spilled some water on him, and i 'm like, oh shit, and you know so like i 've got this like i 'm just used to the, kind of having my like, guard up in a club sort of thing. this guy looks down at me he 's like, oh man, like you know what 's up you know kind of like high five you know big smile and stuff. I think he was just almost surprised to see me in there he more surprised than I was to see him. So I went back in, I tried to get the, you know, some of this, these guys out, then uh, they wouldn't come out like, no, we're good. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. So I go dancing for a bit. There was another colleague who happens to be white. She was, she was the only, uh, only other person, I think from our, our, our team that was out there for any period of time. Um, and then I went back in I'm like, no, like, I know you guys love hip hop because, and then I I asked like, like, what's, what's up? Like, why not? And then, um, you know, one of my colleagues, she said, uh, no, I don't want to get molested. And mm. right there I just like I felt like a part of me just like just shriveled mm. up and died. Cause I'm like, what do you mean, molested? And then I, I realized I, I kind of stepped back and I think from that moment our dynamic changed forever, right? Because mm. mm. I kind of stepped back, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. I know what's up. Mm. And right away in my head, I'm like, black music's cool, black athletes are cool, black culture's cool we can uh, use all of the air quote ghetto slang day and day out we can have like some black colleagues or the token black guy in the room but I am just not comfortable being in a room of all black people to the point where I feel like my own safety is at risk mm-hmm. and uh, there was another there was another guy who um you know was not white he wasn't comfortable coming out there's just this whole group so I just I felt sick honestly mm-hmm. I went mm-hmm. the the rest of the night until everybody ended up clearing out I ended up just i was pretty much out there by myself. Mm. And I had a blast because the music was just so good. I was having such a good time and it was just, yeah, it was a room full of a lot of very large black dudes. And just a lot of people who were having a good time. They were out. It was Friday. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's Friday. I ain't got shit to do. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and, mm-hmm. like, have a good time at a club. Mm-hmm. There were just normal everyday people who happened to be in black skin. Yes. And for me, I don't know why. I, I, because I've just been sort of in and out of so many different circles and social situations. Yeah. I've never been uncomfortable on any group of people. But for like, – I just – I really felt disappointed that day because I'm like, yeah. I thought we knew each other. I thought that we were past this. Like, I didn't think we were in a post-racial utopia at all, but I think that night reminded me. And then a few other experiences that happened soon after that, back here in Toronto, um, particularly as it related to, you know, black friends of mine. Uh, I think it reminded me very quickly. We are so far from that post-racial utopia today. Oh
1: yeah. Oh yeah. Like, you know, like those are two stories that on the surface are very similar, but they're very different because the context is, this is you with your work colleagues and And a lot of a lot of that dynamic's different than me being with someone who was at that moment one of my one of my best friends, like we were hanging out a lot her and I, and she's opening my eyes to experiences around women's realities for myself as around realities of for people of color um but those are two different situations now. I don't tell my story to be like you know I'm this. You know this um, Pied Piper of of white people, bringing them into racial awareness, mm-hmm. and you, you know that story for you is not you being like, "Yo, man, like I I just I I could have done better in that situation." No, absolutely. Like that's first of all, both examples like justify like your ex- your experience, your the way it affected you. Of course, like that is not your duty in that moment a responsibility to kind of like, let me drop a little racial one-on-one like mm-hmm. workshop on y'all right here. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's always left. It can be left to you to do that in that moment. What would have been amazing is if a white colleague, maybe not in that moment, but later, later on was like, you know, we should talk about what happened that night. Cause something didn't sit with yeah. me. And that's, that's so for me, you know, whether or not you choose in that moment to plant a seed, to say a thing just be straight up, yo. What, guys? What the fuck? Like, you have every reason to react however you do, and that's part of the problems. I think that with these two stories, someone might hear it and go, you know, like the example of what I what I did. Um, you know, it's 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 not always the case where that can work out that way. It's well, I think part of where it
0: falls apart though is that you get this classic. Well, when, you know, my best friend is black. Or, you know, my brother is gay mm. or any one of these. So you've got some tangential or even very proximate yep. people in your life yep. that happen to be of that group and you think that you're just cool with it. I do see this often. Like it's often a, a thing that, you know, white people will say is like, well, I have black friends. I'm, I'm cool with it. You know, like I've got, you know, my sister-in-law is black or whatever. Yeah, okay, but that's not that's not – that's not you walking comfortably into a room yeah. full of black people or into a black neighborhood yeah. and not feeling like all of these prejudices are resurfacing. And if those prejudices are surfacing, that's cool, yep. right? Like be aware of them, understand them, be conscious yep. of them. And that's cool too. And, and you know, I, I also don't want to just harp on white people because I think – everybody's racist and everybody's racist to a degree. And usually black people are on the lowest end and the receiving end of that. Again, I'm just mentioning when I was talking to Duane about this, he was good to, he was right to point out in this country and in the U S for that matter, Aboriginal and native people who were basically slaughtered and kicked off of this land, they don't even make it into the conversation. Like, oh, they're yeah. so far on the outside of this conversation oh, yeah. that they're not even in the room, right? And so out of who's left in the room, unfortunately, like black people are usually on the receiving end. And, and Duane was actually mentioning this one book that I haven't yet read, but it's called Scarborough, And it's about this woman, I I believe that she had actually done this interesting study within this community in Scarborough where there was a lot of immigrant populations. And what she noticed from all these stories and anecdotes was that immigrants will come to the city and pretty quickly as a coping mechanism – look and evaluate the power structures and who's got power and privilege and put themselves in a pecking order. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, an immigrant who's coming from some other country, maybe from South Asia or from East Europe or from East Asia or whatnot, will put themselves in that pecking order above black people. So they might be used to being subordinate in everyday life Mm -hmm. to a white person, Mm -hmm. but then they will exercise their power or sense of superiority over a black person. Mm -hmm. And even people who are somewhat disfranchised, who are people of color, who are people that face some level of sort of segregation or oppression or prejudice, Mm. even within our communities, we do that. I've said it many times, like within the Indian community, this is something we got to deal with because this mix of caste and racism and being obsessed with color and whatnot, it's actually quite toxic within the community. A lot of people won't say it, but you've seen so many black artists, for example, in Hollywood, who have risen to prominence as actors, as athletes, even as politicians and whatnot. And they've assumed a certain level of, uh, of power to their credit. But you rarely see someone who is particularly dark-skinned in in the Hindi film industry, in the North Indian film industry, in Bollywood and whatnot, there's a sort of almost a internal intra-racism or classism or shadism that happens there. The way that, you know, I've heard many people of of my skin color talking about black people or Asian people. You know, like, so we all have these racial prejudices. And so we can play victim all day on one hand, but we can't then at the same time have it both ways and not confront our own internal prejudices as well. So I think that we should rightly hold a white person to account as much as we should hold a black person or a gay Jewish man or what have you, right? Like, and at the end of the day, I think that's the thing we got to forget. We got to separate the individual from the issue and the idea and they're as related as they are. Like we should be able to have an open conversation about
1: that. Yes. You know, and one of the things to bring it, to bring it to like my wheelhouse around gender. um, So if you're a white person and that that moment of awareness comes, and it surfaces, and you look in the mirror, and it's like, "Oh my God, I'm racist," or "I have racist attitudes." What do you do? You can, I mean, you know, go get educated, read a book, go watch this person's thing. Like, no, sure, but it starts with there's this moment of real shame. Mm-hmm. One of the things I talk about a lot is shame. I think that is one of the big barriers right now. Fear is kind of like what is the kind of like that thing that gets everyone doing these horrible things that we're doing to each other. But shame is this barrier in our seeing each other and and moving closer to each other. And more more importantly, like you're talking about, I describe it as building a bridge within you. Like there are divides amongst us. Mm -hmm. So building bridges amongst us and with us, between us. Starts with building bridges within us. us. So within us means like, it's like, I see that attitude within me rather than throw it back in the closet. I'm going to put it on the table and I'm going to sit with it. And I'm going to invite someone who's willing to meet me halfway because I'm going to demonstrate trust and respect and humility and honesty and accountability and be like, what do I do with this? So when it comes to, to gender, I think that's that moment for men right now with the me too stuff. Right? So it's like, you hear these stories about awful men, but then you think about some shit that you've done. Mm-hmm. You think about, I've been a certain way. And that shame becomes a barrier. Way back in the day, when I was, I was uh, starting this work at the Ryerson University campus, I had this initiative where we had a week. And I had tables across the campus and the business school, the engineering school, the athletic space, the social change spaces – and the table was like basically people could sign a pledge to never commit, condone, or remain silent on violence against women. And that sounds like a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm down. And the, th- the, the thing was you could sign your name, initial, if you want to put your email to get more information, just sign it. Yeah. Even an initial. Just put in your initials. That's all it was. Like We weren't like, we're not trying to sell you some shit. Just to show, make a statement. It was so eye-opening. There's a campus of like, and I'm not, this is not like inclusive, to exclusive to just Ryerson. It's like, right. I think any campus had this experience. If you do this social experiment, there's like 70,000 full-time students, 50,000 part-time students, um, you know, 10,000 staff administration workers, the whole deal. We had 2,000 plus signatures. Now, that's a great success You look at the ratio, like that's small. Mm -hmm. My experience staffing these tables and witnessing, like sitting at the table or watching the table from the side, seeing the men walk by and their interaction with that statement. Some people were like, yeah, no brainer. Like I I would think you and I would just be like, yeah, bing. Yeah, no problem, man. Um, But some people, their shame was a huge barrier. Shame of even approaching the table. Am I... I'm acknowledging i'm a perpetrator by being here what am i acknowledging by signing it mm-hmm. you know what is that what is that statement about me or this thing around my shame of us as a as a as a gender or as people or my own shit so that turns into aggressiveness or defensiveness right. well not all guys are like this like where is the violence against men table or blah blah blah, yeah. blah right and of course they those are the same people that'll be like they're like what about violence Against men at the hands of women, not violence against men at the hands of men, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. it's not about the men; it's about it. Now, what's the root cause? It's it's my attitude about women and how I devalue them. See, the thing is, I describe um, I describe this all as a ladder, and you can talk about this with race as well. It intersects this, the game we play. It's about society, this capitalist society. It's about power and holding mm-hmm. power and demonstrating power. So I use the analogy, it's like a ladder you have to climb to be at the top. The illusion is that certain, and, and Trump is that example of this This kind of like elite status. And it's not even, he's not even, he's, he's smoking mirrors. There's even a higher true elite sure, yeah. on that ladder. And the idea is you're supposed to climb to the top. Now, if you're white, the impression you get is that you're entitled to that. But a lot of white men hit their own, for lack of a better phrase, their own glass ceiling where they realize, oh, shit, I don't get to be that dude. I think of Zuckerberg in in uh, the Social Network yeah, film. yeah. That's my example of, like, he is in this elite school and he realizes there's a glass ceiling. Like, I don't get to be that white guy, like the twins. Yeah. I'm a run-of-the-mill, mediocre white guy. I've been sold a bag of goods. So he has to... Shatter that, I know glass ceiling is the worst analogy, but that ceiling he faces. So he has to establish power. How do I achieve power? And in society, a capitalist society, the way we achieve power, the way we climb the ladder is we use rungs. Mm -hmm. And the rungs are other people. Yeah. And so um, we reduce people to tools, instruments, and objects. And you can only
0: have one person on one rung at a time.
1: You're either in my way or I can use you. Like, I hate the phrase networking because that's my attitude with networking. To me, it means who in this room do I need to know? Like, who do I have to give my card to get their card so I can move forward? Not about walking into a room being like, how can I serve? How can I give? Who can I connect with? I mean, you make a great connection. Two years from from then, it might turn into something that's financially lucrative, career advancing, etc. But it's just like... I'm just here to be share space with y'all. I'm yeah. like, what do you do? Like, what, what what drives you? What what are you about? Not where do you work? How much money do you make? What's your status? Like, who can you help me with? So we reduce women and girls to the rungs on that ladder. We mm-hmm. use them as the tools, as the rungs to climb up that ladder of status. But where are you on that ladder? Right? Depends on your if you're a man of color, an indigenous man, a man with a disability. Yeah. Um. If you're a white guy who doesn't have access to all the things that white people are supposed to have. Like, you're still white, so you get all this unearned, you know, privilege. Like, you, you, go, to, you go to try to rent uh, an apartment in Toronto, you write down the name John Smith, you know, you, it looks a lot better than writing, yeah. you know, a, a so-called exotic name, right? My ex was white, and her father was unfortunately, you know, racist, and he he said to me, well, why is it like, you know, like these Ethiopians, they have their own, like, they name a, an apartment building after one of them. It's like, what if I did that? Like, you know, I'd be called racist. It's like they had to do that because they would try to rent places and they wouldn't get accepted because of who they were. Yeah. So they had to create their own space. But you see what you want to see. To go back to something we talked about earlier, at the end of the day, all we are, man, all we are is narratives. Mm-hmm. All we are is stories. Yeah. There's the story that other people have of you. There's the story that is told about you. And there's the story that you tell yourselves. The story that you tell people publicly, here's who I am. Like I, t- I told you this, like, oh, I'm a bridge builder. Yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But then who am I? I'm this, this, this guy, this flawed guy who's trying to figure things out. I figure some things out. I'm still learning. you know. But you have to present as an expert. Yeah, like you know, people present me. Oh, here's this guy who's an expert on masculinity. I'm like, man, I'm trying to figure this shit out too. But okay, all right, expert, whatever. Um, But then my narrative is, and I've I've done all this great self work around my attitudes and biases and prejudices. That can be my narrative, or my narrative is I'm trying to figure this out still.
0: You can be self righteous or sort of humble. You know, those are both two different sides of the coin right so
1: i think part of the the problem is we want to have like we want to control the narrative which is you know i get it right you want you want to leave a good impression and unfortunately today it's all about impressions like how many likes i get Mm -hmm. how many clicks i get friends or followers or whatever but you know the thing i always say it's not about the impression you have on others it's the impact you leave on with others so owning the narrative if your narrative of me is like so my friend that i talked about someone could hear that story and be like yo she's a racist i could be like well we can reduce it to that and she clearly exhibited racist um attitudes and opinions she could hear that and go i'm not a racist that's not my narrative for myself what is the narrative i have to own Mm. it so i can't control what people think about me if I spend the rest of my life worried about other people's opinions, yes, you're going to know. But at the same time, the way people think before, like, Jeff's coming over to the party. What are they thinking? When I leave the party, what are they We're saying thinking. about me? Yeah, And I'm not, I'm not talking about like, yo, man, that, that guy's like all this. I'm not worried about that. I'm like, how did I leave people feeling? Mm-hmm. You know, And um, what kind of energy do I bring? Um, what comes into the room before me? So there's certain things you can't control, but there's certain things we can't control.
0: Yeah. And it might be just a matter of semantics. I think there's a couple of things that perhaps Mm. I I disagree with there. Mm -hmm. But so for one, I do, I believe white privilege is a real thing. Yes. And yet you can have, in one moment, white privilege, but also be at an extreme disadvantage because of your, your family situation or a death in yes. the family yeah, 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 or yeah, health yeah. issues or any number of things, right? So I think often people look at this topic of privilege and they make it feel like, oh, that means you just got stuff easy. Yeah. Just because you have privilege doesn't mean that you got stuff easy, 100%. right? Yeah. Logic, who is uh, one of my favorite rappers, I'll say, his dad, who's never been in his life, was black. His mom was white. So he is, by all intents and purposes, you know, born half black, half white. Yeah. But on based on the way his genome's manifested himself phenotypically, he looks like a white guy. Mm. He, from from the outside, you wouldn't look at him and think that this guy is black. Yeah. So he talks about white privilege, but you know, when you know he's had black people in the community and his family like be ashamed that he's rapping, looking like a white guy, and then he's had white people saying he should be ashamed to be black. Mm. Like, what is what does privilege even mean mm. in that context? And so in that case, I do think that there are many white men who feel entitled to, you know, whether it's the presidency yeah. or the being yeah. a CEO or whatnot, but I also don't like broad brush statements and that, like, I think that many men don't necessarily even feel entitled, or let's say white men. I think they just see so much representation of themselves in that situation yeah, that it yeah, feels like yeah, automatic. Yeah, yeah. So, Riz Ahmed, who I love as an actor, he's he's done some incredible things in Hollywood lately. He's a fantastic spoken mm-hmm. word poet, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He actually had this thing, and I think it was either on Fallon or Kimmel um, okay. a few weeks ago, or it may even have been on Trevor Noah's show. Yeah. But he was basically yeah. saying he dislikes – or finds unhelpful the term diversity because diversity is like, you know, it's a sprinkle of, you know, this and that, and yeah, whatnot, which yeah. is always how I felt about to your analogy about throwing seeds at something. Yeah, yeah. It's literally, it's a token nod. Like, Hey, just say like inclusivity, say inter intersectionality and we're good. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't accomplish anything for him. It's actually more about representation. Mm, right. Mm. So if I see a bunch of middle-aged white men, Who are CEOs in big companies or who are politicians or who are leaders in sports and entertainment, et cetera, then I believe that I can be that. But if I'm a young black boy and I never see a black scientist my entire life, I don't see myself out there. So I have to take an incredible leap of faith, right? And there are exceptions to that, to every rule. You know, I mean, someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, he gives pays homage to Carl Sagan for kind of taking him under his wing and believing in him. And he was doing something that was pretty atypical for, for a young black man. But we don't see representation of ourselves out there. And so we don't tend to see ourselves as potential doctors or lawyers or athletes You know, it's easy for an Indian guy to see himself potentially as a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Mm -hmm. But here it's incredibly less likely that he would see himself as a pro-athlete or even president or prime minister or what have you. That is changing. You know, there's a lot of progress that's been made, but there's a lot yet to make. But I think it's important that, you know, when we think about privilege or even being at a disadvantage, these are not blanket statements that apply in all cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. And, And there's this other notion. I mean, I think, albeit... Europeans have particularly over the last 400 years perpetrated all sorts of terrible evils and have created some of the most inhumane circumstances in human history. And yet also there's a lot of credit to be given to that same civilization yeah. on the progress of science and technology, on empathy, on secularism. Yeah. In, in fact, I would say many of the, you know, the white guys I know that are probably the most open-minded, honest, inclusive people – That I know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, those are both coming from the same place. And so we should be able to dissect individual elements of saying that, like, yeah, this makes sense for us to keep working with. And this is something that we need to recognize, but Mm -hmm. also move away with at Mm -hmm. the same time. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think it's, I, I think it's a misnomer to say that black people can't be racist. From from the standpoint of institutionalized racism in the judicial system, in the police force, in the workforce, in matters of getting loans or starting businesses, yeah, absolutely, there's an institutionalized systemic racism that black people, unfortunately, mostly find themselves at the bottom of. But at the same time, you can have all sorts of prejudices. Like I've heard many black people say all sorts of derogatory things about Indian people, about Asian people. You know, I heard black guys saying packy, packy all the time, like when I was growing up in Edmonton and stuff. And so it's, you can't, like, nobody is completely righteous. Nobody is completely perfect. And I think that we should find comfort in that, that we're all flawed and we're all kind of broken in some way. And we might sit in a different place at a different time on that totem pole, Mm -hmm. but we all have work to do. We all have shit to work out, right?
1: Absolutely, man. It's like, and I like the, the latter analogy for that because- I used to think that racism was exclusively about holding power. So if you don't hold power, you can't be racist. So I used to be like, well, I used to think back in the day when I was in my, you know, my teens, all well, black people can't be racist cuz mm-hmm. they have no power. It's like, you know, you think of in certain scenarios or contexts or structural situations, I'm a cop on the street on the beat in that individual context or I'm part of a police force that is systemically you know, as racial bias or I'm a politician or I'm all these different things. That's where I hold power. Um, White folks, you know, this, 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 this running meme of like the white woman calling the cops because black kids are being human beings on a street. Like there's a black person being a human being on the street. This is like, you know, get over here. Um, But then, you know, like growing up and like, okay, I've been called Paki more by black people than any other racial group. I loved and loved black people that never trans- translated in my head of, you know, fuck these people. Like, like it does when I've had examples of white people call me Paki growing up. I didn't see many, you know, brown faces on T mm-hmm. on, on Canadian television. Um, so for me, it was because white people hold power. But what I came to realize is, the ways we hold power aren't always necessarily, it's it's not about, so again, the example of the cop or the politician, those are extreme examples of mm-hmm. holding power in a moment. But we all contribute to the fabric of our community. We all contribute. We all have impact. The world we live in is a world we all yeah. shape. So we're shaping it constantly, whether you are someone like someone like Justin Trudeau. That kind of status is like driving 200 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. The slightest move you make imp- has a heavy impact. Sure, yeah. But in our everyday moments, when you know a comment that's made at the convenience store, like some person in passing you go by this packy, like you can't. You can say, well, the Trudeau pipeline conversation and this guy at the convenience store; those are two very different things. Sure. But it all contributes to the fabric of the environment. It contributes to my perspective on the world I live in. It contributes to the environment. so I think when we say that, part of the ownership is yes, you know whether you're black um whatever whatever racial group, whoever you are like as a, as a you know South Asian man hmm. who grew, was born here in Canada, um, a settler on this island, however I identify yeah. myself, is recognizing all those multitudes that I hold within me of yes, how privilege is fluid. There are moments where I have it and there's moments where I don't. And that can be in the middle of a sentence. Sure. Like I'm sitting with a white woman at a table and it's a present, like a boardroom environment. In mid-sentence the privilege can go back and forth between us, right? And so I think it's owning that and recognizing that and it's like, if I'm asking people to hold themselves accountable I've got to demonstrate it. Like my mm-hmm. line is be the lesson in action. That's my 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 line, right? My motto if you will or mantra. Sure. It's like you got to be the lesson in action. You got to demonstrate it. Absolutely. You know, being a person of color, I do not have the power or the status. I'm born of immigrant parents. My parents, my dad didn't have a will when he died, you know? Like I don't inherit any kind of things like that, but I definitely have status and privileges in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So it's me owning all those truths and not being afraid to own those truths and I think if I can demonstrate that to people it's not about it's it's that's that's strength that's not weakness yeah i think it
0: just for some people i think it feels like a just a cognitive overload right like mm. like mm. at some point am i in privilege or in a disadvantage right now so like let's take the example of a a gay black man with a muslim name Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's like an intersection of a whole bunch of different things playing out at that point in time, depending on who else is in the room at that particular time. Is he trying to get a lease? What area of the city he's trying to move to? Is he in a job interview? Is he having coffee with a friend? who happens to be white, like whatever, Mm, like there's all mm. these different things at play. You know, I think for some people that, especially people who've never really had to face these things, you know, like if you've never had to think about the color of your skin or you've never had to think about how you unconsciously make people feel as a man, for example, you've never had to think about these things because no no one's ever made you feel that way. And now all of a sudden you have to be aware of it. And I don't think that it's necessary to feel guilty at all times, right? Like this idea of guilt that particularly religion is just hammered into billions of people, I think is unhelpful, right? Yes. Guilt guilt if oh, yeah. it guilt if it triggers a uh, an awakening or a change in behavior, that's useful, great. But guilt just for the sake of carrying around that sob story is unhelpful completely. And I think it's it's just important that we all realize that a we're all flawed and we're all kind of working on it. And if just in finding common ground on that is like, I mean, there's things I've probably done in my past that I'm just not even aware of. Mm. Um, You know, to my knowledge, I think I've done my level best to be a decent human being. but inevitably I have unknowingly hurt somebody or stepped on somebody's toes or made somebody feel like, you know, terrible. And then, you know, their memory of me, if they even remember me now as this guy was a total jackass, Mm -hmm. he was a chauvinist or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at least aware that given this social dynamic right now, that might actually happen, then at least I can kind of recalibrate myself. And hopefully over time you do that enough times that it becomes muscle memory.
1: We need, we need to have more examples of this. Like the, the, when I talk about gender, I always say we need more maps to manhood, more models, more examples Mm -hmm. of what to do. Brene Brown talks about how like, Guilt is the feeling of I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. Mm-hmm. Right? So the difference being if you make so if, if if you make a mistake, you know, you're you're a white person, you're a man. You you make a mistake and whether it's like you said like inter- interrupting a woman during a discussion or or something more extreme like that example of um the 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 ex the, the colleagues that you talk about that that scenario at the party the feeling could be guilt of like that immediate or maybe the day after or the week after that feeling of guilt like oh I really messed up or the immediate moment in that moment is shame and the shame becomes overwhelming, it becomes arresting. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that when you hold any kind of privilege or power, when you are in shame you are you are dangerous. Mm-hmm. You're a dangerous person because we – so we talked about this earlier. It's like, you know, you are – whether you're, like, someone who is an immigrant to this country and you were an engineer back home, but now you're doing a very meaningful and Im- important job, like, bagging groceries, like like our brother from The Cosby Show, who yeah. was an actor who – Jeffrey – Jeffrey, what's his name? Anyway, he – you know, he we, – we know the story – who, yeah. like, was was shamed – for bagging groceries as an actor. It's like, that's meaningful work. It's like how many people have like, that's how people started their journey or paid, put their kids through school, all that kind of stuff. Um, You know, I, I think that when we, when we're in this place of shame, so I'm someone who's doing that for a living. Now I'm devalued. I'm called names. I feel powerless at work. I don't drive a BMW home. I take transit. I feel like I'm a sardine in a can. Mm-hmm. I get home exhausted, tired. Kids aren't listening to me. Um, my wife drops on me all the problems of the day. And I feel I don't have the emotional capability or literacy to deal with their things. It's all about what about me and mine is I need to be this rock when I come home. I feel powerless the quickest way to achieve power is through violence. The mm-hmm. quickest way to attain power is to, again, use someone as an obstacle or a, who's like, burst my obstacle. Use someone as a stepping stone or a rung. So in this case, I and mean, this is my father, is like he took it out on my mom, mm-hmm. right? Like he used my mom as this moment of feeling powerful to to feel status, even with no one looking, just for himself internally, like in that brief moment. So it's this thing of like. You know, that was, I mean, I don't know. I've never had a conversation with him about it. It's just me kind of guessing. But I think part of it was the shame he was feeling translated and kind of mm-hmm. like was mixed in the percolator of our yeah. emotional percolator into this thing, you know. And I think that, you know, shame, it's tough because people, when they, some people will hear me use the word shame and they're like, you know, oh, we need to shame like Doug Ford or Donald Trump. Like we're got to shame them. I'm sure someone like Trump has spent fifty years of people more than fifty years, sixty plus, of people telling him, you know, that was not cool what you did. Yeah. That was not whatever. And that moment where you become aware of something, that feeling of like, ugh. You know, like you make a comment at the at the at, the, at a party and you're like, Ugh, or your colleague, your buddy goes, Yo man, did you did you realize what you just said? That feeling is a shitty feeling. You either lean into it or you just quickly just like forget that that happened. Right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes in the moment you got to move on and then but you come back to it um, or in that moment deal with it. But we need more examples of mm. how to do that, man. Like right now, again, all this shit is surfacing. People's true attitudes, my own true attitudes I need examples of how do I move through it? And we have these extreme examples of like, you know, American History X, the, the film of like, mm-hmm. you know, great. I love that film. A film of like someone who is in the extremes, someone who's a a Nazi, neo-Nazi, who has a life-changing experience and finds redemption. Circle. Yeah. But it's like, we need examples of what that can look like in everyday life.
0: Man, you cover so much all at <laughs> once. I, I like, I, I, I find I've always found it particularly interesting to kind of step up and look at the world you know, from 30,000 feet a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that I find interesting, and when you talk about the story with your father, and, and you know, we were talking about just violence in the home in general, in yeah. a lot of places, um, I do feel I'm blessed because I have, I think, the most incredible father I, I could have had, and he's Amazing. been a great example as a role model in, in the way he conducts himself with people of every background and in, in the respect he's showed my mom all, all the while and raising us to be sane men, my brother mm-hmm, and I. Mm-hmm. But if you look at at 30,000 feet, the social structures and the infrastructure and architecture of society, Mm -hmm. our incentive systems are so upside down and broken. Uh So if you look at the world that we live in today, and particularly the industrialized West, but most of the world, post-World War II – If you look at the way all companies or most companies for decades have been structured, they basically follow a military model, right, of command from the top, right? So there's a hierarchy that rolls up to a single individual who makes that decision and then it percolates down from there. So there is a pecking order and you are either at the bottom, at the top or somewhere in the middle of it. And if you're in the middle, in one moment you are being yelled at and berated, in the next moment you are doing the yelling and berating. Mm -hmm. And so that culture made its way into corporate culture and into the workplace and into enterprise. That's made its way into the public sector. If you essentially look at the presidency and the structure of governments, Mm. it's essentially the same thing. You have a commander in chief. There's a nuance or semantic difference from one country to the next. But for all intents and purposes, Canadian prime minister, the U.S. president, the the prime minister in Britain – they're essentially in a state where they are a chief with an ability to hand down edicts if yes. you will yeah and so if you have a structure that's set up like that that's hierarchical and on top of that your incentive structure is forcing people to basically either flee or run towards something right and it's out of fear and uncertainty you're getting people to consume something our entire economic engine is based on fear and uncertainty and buying more shit to feel better about yourself mm-hmm. So if that is the case, now at some point that day, you were in a position where you felt berated, where you felt that your voice wasn't heard, where you weren't given your due credit as a human being. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't been given the tools, particularly as a man, to even understand those feelings, you know, and I think this is something that I kind of picked up from you among other people, that if you haven't had that vocabulary around emotions and feelings and how to deal with it. Yeah. As a guy, you know, many men will just go to the one tool they know, which is their fists. Right. Yes. Cause this is just something that I think many of us are hardwired to do. It's easy. It's a quick sort of, it's a quick path in your brain from like, I'm angry to boom. it's a very long drawn out path that you don't understand from I'm angry to let me understand why I'm angry to how can I do a better job of managing this especially because as men for most generations in most families and countries we aren't Given those tools as young boys, right? Mm-hmm. Someone else hits you in the schoolyard, hit him back, right? Yep. Man up, don't cry. And again, these are I'm, these are all out of your playbook, like stuff that I've heard you say. But you know, this idea that you shouldn't, um, you know, you shouldn't be crying as a man. I mean, Trudeau was mocked and ridiculed for crying at his father's funeral. Like, what kind of a world do we live in that you, whoever you are, can't cry at your own father's funeral? Right? Like, something is broken there.
1: There was a there was a baseball player um, this season who the shots were of him on the bench, like hugging his teammate and he's kind of like basically like in his lap crying. He found out his mom died and they're making so much fun of him in the moment online and the broadcasters. I mean, to be fair, they didn't know what was going on, but I think in that moment you could see that picture and be like, something has happened. This isn't, Oh, he struck out mm-hmm. like, come on, toughen up. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, or it's like someone ate his bubble gum like mm-hmm. on the bench. Yeah. Something traumatic has just happened clearly the way that they're con- he's consoling this guy who's sobbing in his chest right so you know you talk about muscle memory so my analogy for a lot of this is um you know these phrases like emotional literacy they kind of like go over your head like what the fuck does that mean but basically it's yeah. like like if you're so i talked about this idea of at what age does childhood end and, and When we talk about men, I I, I try to be careful not to paint everyone with the same stroke. Like there are men who, you know, have degrees of experiences where they are more emotionally aware. They have had more. They have had experiences which open their perspective, and they have more empathy uh, and compassion, etc. But for the most part, young girls are encouraged to explore. Emotional communication and connection, mm-hmm. expressing themselves. That's encouraged and allowed. It's expected of them. They can be devalued for it. you know. So fast forward to the future, being empathetic um, is something that I think is a valuable skill to use as a leader. Yeah. It can be devalued if your mentality, mentality of leadership is consume, destroy, take, you know, capitalist, like mm-hmm. consume everything. Um, fuck them. But at an early age, so young boys are growing up and at one point we take away the teddy bear, like I said, replace it with an action video game of violence or a violent video, a violent doll kind of thing. And you got a man up. So their emotional growth is stunted. So it's like a young girl emotionally, if you want, let use the analogy of a gym. A young girl's been going, so you now you're twenty now you're thirty now you're forty as a woman in society you've been going f- to the gym for forty years emotionally
0: mm-hmm. yeah. so
1: emotionally you're jacked yeah yeah you're jacked you know yeah, how yeah. to use all the equipment, yeah, all the different things you are a pro you're a, you're a beast, yeah, so dealing with shit, having those conversations, calling up your girls, talking working through things, but for men we're still emotionally stuck we're that guy who goes to the gym once in a while. And we kind of like. And only when
0: they're forced to. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> years ago, years ago, um, I've had this up and down with my body and my, my challenge as a man is with my health and my physical being. And years ago, I went to the gym. My ex, we broke up, but I still had this membership through her. And I was paying like a fraction a month. And like, there's some people out there, like fools like me, who will just continue to pay every month and never go and be like, yo, it's such a great deal. Yeah, so I'm going to hold on to this shit, and someday I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to be this gym guy. So I started going every month, and I was just periodically just going here and there, and I would just—I had no idea what I was doing. So I'd sit on a on on a on a some equipment, probably sat on it backwards, probably (laughs) did the wrong thing, you know. So I remember I was looking for a personal trainer, but the gym I went to was in Woodbridge. And they were all just, like, these bros that were just, like, there to, like, pick up women. And, like, yeah. they'd be, like, they'd be sitting with their client. All right, just do 10 of those, man. And then they'd be looking around talking to people. What's going on, man? How you yeah. doing, bro? Yeah, Wh- yeah. While flexing. You look swole, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, they're like, they're not paying attention to the client. And then I saw this woman who worked there who was a personal trainer. And she was a bodybuilding uh, competitor. And she was with her client. And she was locked into her client. She's like, give me five more reps. Five. Four, three, two. Can you give me three more? Three, two. Let's keep going. Three and two. And just bring them and pull them through. And now you did ten instead of five reps when you thought you could only do one more. So she's locked in with her and she talked with them and like I was like, I need to I need to work with her. But I was so like I'm like I'm so ashamed to approach anybody at the gym to ask for help, especially her. All my macho shit. So one day I'm on, I'm sitting on this machine of of equipment and it's like a, it's a chest press and it's like, so I'm sitting on it and I think in my head I'm working out, (laughs) right? I'm not. And then she, 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 she comes with her client and sits next to me and they do some reps and then he takes a break to go to the bathroom. So I see her looking at me at the corner of her eye and she says something. I take out my headphone like, sorry, right? And she's like, sit up in your seat. So I I, I, I like sit up straight. She's like, no, no, no. lift it up a couple of notches. And I was like, oh. So I got off and I realized you can actually lift up the notches on the chair. So I sit in it. She's like, now do your rep. So I do the rep, right? The chest press thing. And she's like, do you feel a difference? I was like, yeah. So she goes, the way you were sitting before, you were low in the seat. So essentially you're working your shoulders. Yeah. You're not engaging your chest. Yeah, yeah. So she's like. Have a plan, have a target, work a part of your body, and make sure you're working that part of your body. And then she went back to her client because her client came back. And I just sat
0: there. Mic like, drop. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was like, in those two minutes, you totally changed my life. Like, you changed my perspective on not just like coming to the gym, but like in life, like, If you're doing something, do something. Like you know. Anyway, so it's like. Yeah. So I went up to her after I was like, I need you to train with me. So I worked with her and I lost a bunch of weight and got in shape with her. Um, my point is, for us as men, we go through our lives, and we're kind of emotionally at the gym, being like, I think I know what I'm doing. I can kind of like go with the guys and whatever. But then you enter a relationship mm-hmm. or a work dynamic, and now you've got to work those muscles. And you're working so in a relationship, a romantic relationship, you're with a woman who's been working out for thirty yeah. years emotionally. Yeah, now you got to. She's catch, a pro bodybuilder. Right, you yeah. got to catch yeah. the fuck up. The problem is now it's on her to have to train you. She's like, oh, not like, not this narrative of you know I've got to like turn my man into something like that works for me. Like I got to mold him. What a lot of the women mean by that is I've got to get you caught up to do this emotional work that is a relationship. As you know, as a husband, as a mm-hmm. father, all these different things, you need to like – and it's not – no one's got it figured out. But you've got to be at a place where you have a better understanding of why we do what we do and how to do it. And like you said, um, rather than turning to a quick fix of like let me just take some of these steroids or let me just hit someone to feel powerful, when I'm in a situation, what is the long journey towards – de-escalating disarming moving forward in a way that's fruitful so the analogy i use is as men we need to build our empathy muscles yeah so it's learning how to um work that as a muscle and it's muscle memory and it's an ongoing thing but the problem is we rely on the women in our lives to do that work that the phrase is emotional labor now the thing is women are left to do all that work, but they are they're like they're here for us. They've always been here for us. And so many women in our lives end up being our mothers, right? Yeah. Like when you have a problem, you turn to a woman in your life, right? You'll have a real raw conversation with them. You might have some guys that you there's and again, this is what I'm saying, some men do have that relationship with men where they can talk about things. But it's still on the surface. Yeah. You know, if it's not this like, oh, fuck women,
0: Or it's bro. the exception and not the rule. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's
1: like sometimes you can get deeper, but there's still layers to it. But more importantly, building that muscle means doing the, the having the conversations internally and with people. Like there's, there's conversations you need to have with a professional, like a therapist, but there's also conversations we can have with each other as men. Where it's like, because a lot of this is figuring yeah. it out on your own. Like the first rule of being a guy is you don't talk about it, you just do it. You try to figure it out. Yeah. The problem with that is we all have life lessons we can share with each other. And we don't, because it's like I don't wanna make you feel weak or I don't wanna demonstrate that I didn't I didn't know at one point. Yeah. I've got to project that I gotta figure That's it out.
0: that right there, like that that the three words I don't know are just mm. so important and yet not used. I I'm just kinda coming back to the, the war and I don't know. I mean, I've I've been thinking about this for all of five seconds, but I have to wonder if part of the reason society is in the state that it is is Mm -hmm. that in a time of war, from just an evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense that you would want to raise your men to be physical, to be physically strong, to be emotionally distant. Because at the end of the day, when the call of duty comes and you need to go and kill somebody – for some bizarre idea that might be national borders or religion yeah. or some other bullshit that we make up and sell ourselves as human beings. But at that time you can't be empathetic and have like emotional intelligence and all that stuff. You just got to kill and move on. Right. Yep. And so we still raise our generations of boys and men as if we were at war and we are not at war I and mean, we won't be at war within ourselves, but we are not with you know the outside world barring some obvious situations today And so this is something I actually kind of picked up from uh, Sebastian Younger, who is this Author who wrote a book called mm. Tribe, and yeah, um, I came I came across it on uh, on, on Joe Rogan's mm-hmm, podcast, mm-hmm. and then I bought the book and I loved it. Mm. But you know that there's two different types of leaders. You know, there's peacetime leaders and there's wartime leaders, and they have different characteristics and whatnot. But we we raise m- boys and men to be thinking as if they're going into war yeah. in the schoolyard, in yeah. the boardroom, yeah. um, you know, in the place of worship, in the streets every day, and we still. I think for the most, we're starting to impart some of that to our girls, but maybe not to the same extent. And we're still at least coupling that with some level of empathetic and emotional intelligence. And we're giving them freedom to do that. And I'm, I'm finding what's, re- what's really interesting. I'm trying to internalize in my own life as a father with a daughter and a son, mm. this wholly aware of what's happening in the world. Cause you know, five-year-old boys have told you know my daughter in kindergarten there's you know girls can't play with superheroes there's stuff that girls can't do and i'm thinking where are these boys picking up that idea yeah. already right like yeah. and so meanwhile i feel like i have to arm her with the ability to know that she can do anything she wants regardless of what anyone else says right so i'm kind of i think i'm I'm imparting on her and my wife and i are trying to part on her this level of self-confidence and mm-hmm. self-belief and yet at the same time being humble and being in touch with you know yeah. the, those, the feminine sides of yeah. empathy and all that yeah. And then I also have my son, who's four, and my daughter's seven. So now he's a very sensitive, empathetic little guy, like just by nature. If he enjoys anything at all, the first thing he'll think about is Didi, which means sister. He'll think about his Didi and mm. what he can do to make her day. But there'll be times where he'll say, girls can't do this, right? Or this is for boys. And that's not something he's picking up at home. That's something he's picking up in the schoolyard, in the daycare, now in kindergarten and whatnot. And so... At the same time, I'm trying to figure out how do we give two different messages to two different people who will have two completely different life experiences and still make them congruent. How do I how do I tell my son, you know, you can believe in yourself, violence is not the answer, but still at some point put you into martial arts so you feel comfortable enough to defend yourself if you feel you need to, but also be emotionally in touch with yourself. And yet that doesn't necessarily mean that you let people push you over. How do I also make that same message come across for my daughter who's going to end up facing an entire world in her life that says you can't do that because you're a girl? And she'll face it less so than my wife and, you know, my mother would have in their generations, but we're not at that stage yet. So it's really weird trying to explain Mm -hmm. this thing to two kids Mm -hmm. at the same time. And it's actually quite complicated. Oh, it is. Like, it's so nuanced and it's trying, like, how do we be congruent in this moment If, you know, there'd be times where my son's tickling, you know, his sister and she's like, stop it, stop. And eventually she starts crying because she just wants him to stop doing it. So in my head, I'm like, she's asking you to stop, dude. When she says like, stop, you should stop. And for me, that's almost like a pre-lesson on consent, right? Right.
1: Yes. At it the is. same time, 100% on the,
0: at the same time, she'll be bugging him. She'll be poking him, or she'll be looking at him funny, or whatever. And he's yeah. saying, "Stop it! Stop it!" And so she does it. And so I, I feel for parents and kids and school teachers and whatnot. That like we don't. None of us have all the answers for this stuff.
1: Well, and I, I think it starts with that. It starts with saying, "I don't have the answers." It's the humility part of it because, you know, I I I was with a woman for seven years in a relationship who had two daughters, so I have some understanding and they were four and six when we met mm-hmm. and I was very much an active guardian like I was in the bathroom cleaning up when they'd pooped themselves and I was also having a conversation about sex with them like I mean consent and sexuality yeah, yeah. at an appropriate age kind of thing um so I was in there I'm not sitting here and saying oh I I, I did the parenting thing like I had a taste of it and wow it is talk about again like driving a car at 200 miles an hour where the slightest it's the things you say and the things you don't say, you know, it's as much as it's what you do and what you didn't do. Um, and to, to tie it back, I want to go back to your, your conversation around the war analogy. We celebrate and do the rituals and the routines of the war analogy in sports culture, mm-hmm. which is a very hyper masculine environment. And the reality is being assertive is so important in life. Sure. Yeah. So we give that to boys. We teach them to be assertive. Assert yourself in yes. life. You want to do yes. the thing, do the thing, be the thing. Jump on the monkey bars, take a risk, take a chance. You take a risk, you take a chance, you fall on your ass. right? But the narrative is life becomes conflict. It becomes a contest where it's like I'm struggling to achieve versus connection. Mm-hmm. Like, I think even when you're competing on the field, being assertive is not a negative trait. No, it, The problem is when it flips into aggression, mm-hmm. where on the ice or on the court or whatever it is, this person, like, I need to win. So I need to win at your expense. It's not like we can't win. We can't, you know, hey, it's a tie. We're all friends. Like, you know, it's, it's competition, et cetera. But you can do it in a way where there's still a brotherhood. Yeah we learn and grow from each other like i have a competitor who i hate playing on the field or on the court but i respect you for how yeah. you play the game and i respect you for the way you do your thing and that from boyhood we can instill those things where asserting yourself doesn't have to be at the expense of someone yes there has to be a winner and a loser quote unquote but we our greatest learning comes through our mistakes like mm-hmm. it's so wild like all the greats will say that. I learned the most through my failures, my mistakes. But it still is about winning.
0: It's like fuck, To me, it's like this winning culture, like winning. It's like, wow. fuck winning. Well, and you only ever hear that statement from the people that are you know, so-called winners, right? Because Top you, of only, the game. you only
1: value it when it's like said from Michael Jordan. Yeah. When it's someone who – like they're, you know who's the greatest quarterback? Whoever has the most rings or the greatest athlete who's done the most things. It's not all about that achievement right like you don't have to be the best you don't have to win all the time because that narrative is false because it's pretending again the trump does this thing of like never no losses never admitting defeat never mm-hmm. talking about like when the evangelicals were like he was trying to win that audience and they'd ask him like you know like as 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 christians we all talk about our flaws and our mistakes and you know look to god for mercy what are some of the sins or the things that you've he's like oh i've not really made any mistakes you yeah, I was like, oh, I'm not. perfect!" And right. then
0: he went on to quote, "What was it,
1: Corinthians 2? <laughs> okay. But wow. so, like, so again, it's like, again, it's like, if we're raising young boys to embrace just one side of human traits, right? Like, so young girls, we can raise them to be assertive, but still also be mindful. Because young girls, you have to be mindful at an early age. Like I said, like you, you realize at some point that people there are people out to get you yeah. in different ways so you become aware of your body and all these different things but and that happens to young boys to obviously yeah. of course um but we raise them differently where it's like take but young girls will think and again this is not this is generalizing but it's like if i take what happens to someone who doesn't have mm-hmm. so when you share that like with you're doing with your son to learn about how it's like it's 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 about us. I can get a piece. Uh, I can I can get a cookie or a cake or whatever, a slice of cake, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of my sister. But we raise young boys
0: a, too many with that mentality. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's even – it's just bigger than boys and girls are. Like we fundamentally have a scarcity mindset, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, I don't believe – that there is a room full of evil geniuses somewhere who's plotting all this. Yeah. I think there are a number of evil geniuses who are pulling certain strings and whatnot to sure. their advantage. Yep. But this idea of scarcity is what's actually driving our world and our economies, yeah. right? So the, for all intents and purposes, we do have scarce resources, but some of those resources are scarce and some are not, yes. right? There is scarce oil. There is scarce shelf space in a store and whatnot, but yep. yet – there is actually an abundance of food. Like, I don't know what the stat is, something like 25 oh. or 40% of oh, our food yeah. actually goes, is thrown away. Um, you know, the incredible wastage. We could be investing money in solar or geothermal or hydroelectric. We could be finding other sustainable ways to power our world. But because the the systems and infrastructures and the systems of reward are based entirely around certain commodities, yep. right? And you need to create scarcity, And then get people to chase that scarcity. And in chasing that scarcity, they will drive the engine and they will give you money and you will become rich and powerful and everyone else will just be pacified and complacent just for some time. So the entire system is built around that. The moment you start talking about abundance, right? And being able to share, the first thing you end up hearing from a lot of critics of it is like, how are we going to pay for all that? Mm -hmm. Okay, clearly we're not going to pay for it with the same systems that have created the problem that we have today. Um, So, and and that's where I think that we we need to kind of reflect as individuals, but also as a society on like these problems that kind of manifest themselves in schoolyards are actually little microcosms of the bigger thing that we're all contributors for. And you rightly pointed out before we even got on air here that, you know, we kind of look at this leader and we look to them to solve it, but we forget that we built the house in your words,
1: right? Absolutely, man. It's like, you know, the world we live in is the world we shape, like I said, and it's like... You you think that, but the way the, you know the the narrative is written so that you think it takes that person to make the change. But we all, you know, I get it. Voting is complex and it's not as simple as just vote. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, you vote that person in. Um, you have a handful of choices, and really, you know, we talked a bit about Obama and Trump, and I, I shared the story of being at Ryerson, um as a as a As a community organizer and in the early stages of my masculinities work on the campus and the student union held a viewing party for obama's inauguration in january two thousand and nine you know off the dovetails of this you know this wonderful story of a black man doing the impossible and becoming president and with the yes we can narrative and it's a we uh we put him you know even though this it was american mhm nation the world felt this wave of like wow and that moment of like you know all these people gathered in this little auditorium we're standing on the on the walls because there's no room to sit and we watch his speech and it's 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 the by the numbers kind of material uh, military military kind of like you know america and this is who we are military might and our strength and everyone's like oh right Mm -hmm. He's the president of the United States. But we still do, as a collective, determine what we're going to stand for, not stand for, what we will accept, what Mm -hmm. we will take in. But the problem is when you get into that mentality where it's like, no, we don't, or we can't, or what's the point? And there's always someone in the wings waiting to take advantage of our despair or of our fear. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, we keep bringing this guy up, but like, um, I talked with you also about Trump and how back in the day he had this interview on Howard Stern. He's, he's had ambitions to be president for for a long time, but it became realistic around 2011. We started looking at the mechanisms and the machine and like going after Obama and all that stuff. Right. And so he was on Stern and quickly he was saying how, um, you know, his, exp- his worldview is being a so called real estate expert. And this this narrative of him being this this success at it, and uh, even though he had like he had like six bankruptcies mm-hmm. and all this stuff, and so he talked very frankly about how you know he sees in real estate how one of the greatest things is when a property or or an entity is in distress, and that's like the beautiful magic word, right? And that was his perspective on America, you know, and his perspective of America is someone who's so, so privileged, like who his only idea of the outside world is a golf course. Um, when he traveled the world, all he would see was airports and highways. So he would talk about how, you know, I travel around the world, I go around the world, Dubai, et cetera. And like all their infrastructure, their, their highways are made of gold and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And here, which is true, everything's false and decrepit, uh, falling apart. So he talked about how he moved in when he saw things were in distress. Which was the state of the world? Like it, it, he didn't create this thing; he's unleashed in a lot of ways, and I think that's where we're at right now. You have young men on campuses, for example, who are struggling. They're they're new to the city. Say mm-hmm. they come to the big city. Yeah, they come. From, they don't come from money. They're not driving. They're not pushing a fancy car. They don't have a six pack. They don't have all these. They're not cool. Whatever. Yeah. I'm not the, the the cool guy on campus or at residence. So, you know, how do I fit in? Like part of coming to a campus is, yes, achieving a degree and beginning your career, launching into your career, but it's also discovering yourself. I want to get laid. I want to have fun. I want to be somebody. I want to have identity. And this is your first time on your own, freedom, et cetera. So inevitably there can be someone who will tap on your shoulder and be like, and you know whose fault that is? It's women's fault. Like it's these women, these you know, whatever like derogatory, these bitches who don't like who want the the cool guy and don't want you, and it's their fault, so there are people who are waiting to take advantage of us in those moments, so I think it's it's again it's how do we contribute to a culture of caring, how do we contribute to a culture where we're caring for everyone and recognizing that you know again. The struggles of a privileged white person for me as a person of color, is that my problem? I mean, I hear you when you're like, why do you have empathy or care about those folks? But it's like, that's the danger, Mm -hmm. right? Because, like, for me, it's like I'm invested in that person figuring it out. I'm not going to put all my resources into it necessarily. That's it's for up to anyone to choose. Like, the work I do with men, it's really. It's not about being a good man to women. Like the measure of being a good man is not about how we Right. It yeah. is I mean it yeah. is. Yeah. That's definitely obviously it's very important, especially in this day and age, whether you're being selfish, like you know, I gotta you gotta look out for your image or your PR spin, or because you generally want to work on being a better human being to the women yeah. and girls yeah. in your life. But being a good man is not solely defined on that. No. It's defined on how we interact with other men and boys, people of any gender. But that includes you. Yep. Because if if we see men and manhood as this – like there's a quote that I love that someone said, to prove that you are unbreakable as a man, you have to break yourself. So if we don't Hmm. value men and manhood, like it has to start with me. Right. You know, like I have to value – not just like I'm not this rock that I just use as a hammer and burst through things. I'm very – I'm a human being and I'm just physically not just flesh and bone and skin. Emotionally, you don't have that ability. Like As human beings, we have an elasticity where we can take so much and we stretch ourselves and stretch ourselves and the rubber band can take on more and take on more. But every time it takes on more, it stretches itself out, that elasticity starts to to, to tear and eventually it'll snap. And I think the thing as men we need to realize is that we are finite beings and it's not just about physically taking care of ourselves. Like So the physical idea of going to the yeah. gym and being healthy, it's the emotional side of it too. Um, and that means healthy relationships with each other. Yeah. But it starts with yourself. And then it's the people you love and care about yeah. and people you don't know too.
0: Yeah, and I think that I hate the terms left and right, personally. I just don't find them Mm -hmm. helpful in terms of real, meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. For the purposes of political conversation, you kind of need to use those as a frame of reference because that's just the accepted norm. But it pits people inevitably against each other, us and them, all of that sort of thing. When we look at our situation in the world, whatever that situation might be, whether it's the broken economic systems, whether it's the political divisions, whether it's the wars that are happening and all of this... I find it's more and more people, you know, by the millions, obviously are, are, are cognizant that these things aren't just organically happening. These are being, these are contrived specific events and systems. I think that instead of fighting amongst each other, like if there really needs to be in us and them, it should really be in us as like sort of people of goodwill who just want to live a peaceful life. And, and, you know, we may not be the nicest people and want the best for everybody, but we at least recognize our common humanity. And again, I, I don't want to even create outside evil characters in this narrative. But if you realize that a war is being declared at any given point in time, the first thing you should be doing is who stands to make money on this, yeah. right? Who stands to consolidate political power on this? So, um, you know, the U.S. went in on bullshit, false pretenses into into Iraq on this idea of weapons of mass destruction, which was a complete boldface lie who gets the reconstruction contracts, you know, Halliburton, mm-hmm. whatnot. You have this war, this proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran playing out in Yemen with rebels backed by both factions. Canada still selling billions of dollars in arms there. Yeah. You know, every every single conflict, and it could be a humanitarian crisis, it could be any number of things, someone is always benefiting. Like It just came up in the news that the Canada pension plan, one of the largest pension plans in the world, One of the the sub-investments in one of its portfolios had something like $6.8 million invested in two or three companies in the U.S. that are actually providing either security and or equipment for the detainment of all these migrants that are coming across the border in the U.S. Mm. So now the public sector – for its retirement has a portion of its funds on our taxpaying dollars Jeez. being invested in a company that's actually incarcerating kids and separating them which almost i think most people in this country would say that's barbaric it shouldn't be happening we don't agree with that yep. but your money's going into that right yep. and so i think we need to just be a little bit more cognizant of how this plays out and i think the one of the earliest examples i had come across of this a friend of mine who is also Sinhalese uh, I went to high school with, he had told me the story about when he was in Colombo years ago, mm. he was, uh, he'd was he gone out to a nightclub with some of his cousins and friends. And so this is going back to probably the early mid-90s maybe. Mm. So he was at the club and then all of a sudden, I guess they were outside and a fleet of cars pulls up and all of a sudden the entire crowd just parts like the Red Sea basically mm. And security gets out, they line up alongside of the walkway and this entourage rolls out and there's this one guy who's clearly the guy. He just kind of walks in like he's a shit, walks into the club, full respect from everybody that's around there, uh, walks into the back of the club, sits down in the VIP area and then you know, kind of that's that. So my friend had asked his cousins, who is this guy? And this guy was in Colombo who had been selling... Munitions, who knows where he was procuring it from, but he was selling arms to both the Sinhalese military and to the Tamil rebels. Okay. So he's essentially this god of war character, right? As long as the war continues, someone is profiting. Mm -hmm. So, but this guy in the middle of some state of war, this guy's just walking scot free in. He's a known entity. He's not some secretive guy that's off like a recluse on an island somewhere, yeah, you know, yeah. stroking his cat sort of thing, right? <laughs> like this guy's amongst everybody. And I think he's a perfect analogy for much of what plays out today, right? With the way the tobacco lobby has for decades known that its yeah. products were killing people, right? Yeah. We know that when we make missiles and these transport vehicles and whatnot, they're going to get used on civilians, the financial crisis in' eight, which we just crossed the ten year anniversary of, there was very intelligent people who understood very abstract derivatives of financial investments in vehicles, mm-hmm. and they knew that this whole thing was a sham, yes, but they were greedy, and it didn 't matter like these guys, arguably on Wall Street have killed more people in the last ten years than any of the wars in the West, based on the number of suicides and the amount of mental and domestic trauma yeah. they would have put on families just sheerly for greed and yet these banks are bigger today than they ever were no one went to jail even though they literally like it's murder it's mass murder at that point point. and so I think as informed citizens it's up to us to even if you don't think about these things on a daily basis at least recognize that there are most people have goodwill <coughs> in mind and there's a few that don't and at least mm-hmm. if you find somebody else of goodwill whether you agree with all of their opinions or not that's actually a person that you should form some sort of an allegiance with. And that maybe we can find some way to actually fix all of this. And we might have differences of opinions on how we do that, but we are not enemies, right? We are in this together.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how many times that phrase follow the money Mm -hmm. can, can like, you know, like, I think it's, again, not just like money is in dollars, but like who, like, again, like you said, who benefits. And I think of, To kind of bring it back to my neck of the woods, this example of kind of seeing a state of distress and hard, courageous conversations that need to happen, but someone jumping in and manipulating and writing the moment and making it, no, the real enemy is this, so join our team Mm -hmm. with this false narrative. Yeah. So with the Me Too stuff that's happening... I, I haven't looked at it yet, but the New York Times posted, I put it on my Facebook, but the New York Times posted a poll that's showing that now um, people in the States are now siding against survivors. And they're now, um, the, whatever phrase I want to use, backlash to the movement, which we knew was going to come. Right. Because again, the narrative becomes, oh, this is women Trying to take over or women, you know, trying to attacking men, again, coming from this place of fear or shame where the real narrative is it's not these women's behaviors that led to these problems. At the end of the day, whatever you want to say, a handful of men or a number of men, whatever that number is, it's not just Bill Cosby that screwed over all these women, Mm -hmm. right? You have... You have predators, and I believe that there are men who, when they cross that line of being abusive and they get away with it, and there's no consequence because of their power, and they use their power to protect themselves, yep. then there's a number of, of victims and yeah. survivors. But it's, the real truth is that it's, it's the people who are, if anyone's ruining the lives of men, it's other men. Yeah. So we need to have some courageous conversations. Again, not, not saying, okay, not all men. Right? It's not all men that are the problem, but what are we doing to be a solution? Sure. Yeah, exactly. It's not just about women and girls. It's about us. Like, if there are guys who are like, I don't know how to date anymore, how to pick up women, I don't know how to approach women. For me, I can look at that and go, Well, you're probably a horrible human being. (laughs) Or I can be like, You know what? Let's have a conversation about it. Yeah. And it's not so simple. It isn't simple. When people who like people say that consent is black and white, no, it's not it's complicated, it can be complicated. we're at the like you know like we're at the grocery store and you wanted to have sex, and we're back at your place. you want you don't want to. I can ask why and explore why, but I don't want to come across as being i 'm trying to push you into maybe we'll leave it, we can talk about yeah. it like what I'm trying to say is that there are moments and situations where um I think we need to recognize these conversations are more complicated and more nuanced and that we do a disservice when we try to say, oh, it's just about being a good guy. Just be a good guy. Just don't be a dick. And I agree. Don't be sure. Yes. Don't be a dick. Yeah. Let's start there. Yeah. But it's, it's deeper than that. there's more going on than that. And I think that when we talk about things that are happening around the world that directly or indirectly affect us, having compassion is the first step. Oh, that's terrible. You know, um, so, for example, like a story of like, you know, like a woman who has to leave a, a field because of, you know, I, I wasn't willing to play the game um, and be quiet about the abuse or mm-hmm. the, the, the the toxic environment. I had to leave. So you can look at that and go, oh, that sucks. That's terrible. But then the moving from compassion directly to action won't work because guys are like, oh, that sucks. But so the action piece, well, no, she's just got to get on. You know, she's got to toughen up and like that's the world we live in everyone has struggles and whatever but the empathy piece is when you move from compassion to empathy to action because there's a great line i love that someone said i it's an unknown quote but the unknown author but it's um compassion without action is just observation so i can see Mm -hmm. something and have compassion true but i gotta take action but the problem is you can't jump to action so without the empathy piece so The empathy piece is, I see that's your reality, that's compassion. Empathy is, but I understand what that means for you. So I get what your field is predominantly male, it's toxic, that sucks. Compassion. Empathy is, I get how that would make you feel being in that environment. Like your story, that experience of like, you know, you're in a place that's like, how, I don't feel, I don't feel this is a right fit for me, and how people have to jettison spaces or mm-hmm. leave spaces. The empathy piece is recognizing how that feels, how that impacts you, how that pushes people out of spaces or fields or careers, um, or places. So brilliant minds, brilliant perspectives are missing. We're missing all these stories, these narratives, their contributions to society, science, technology, music, right. the arts, journalism, etc. The action piece is what we do about it. So, my thing, you probably heard me say this, is it's I see you, I feel you, I got you. So, I see you as the compassion piece. I see what you're going through. But, I feel you is the empathy piece. I see what that, I see how that impacts you, how that impacts us. I get why that's a thing. And then, I got you is what I do about it. Mm -hmm. What do we do about it? So, like, I see you, I see the world. There's these different world issues like you laid out. What do we do about it? So I jumped to the action piece. Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, you got to figure it out. Like, you got to get your shit together. But the empathy piece is recognizing how it impacts them, how it impacts us, how it impacts everybody, this larger narrative. You know, like in this province in Ontario, we voted in a, you know, a guy that I wouldn't trust to run a hot dog stand, never mind the province. Yeah, yeah. And Because it kind of went from everyone being like, oh, you know, it's people just... It's survival of the fittest. We gotta look out for ourselves. We gotta look out for me and my bottom line and this guy's gonna cut taxes or whatever, whatever. But versus looking at and I get that this comes into a conversation of, you know, we we compartmentalize left and right and right. whatever. Yeah. I think that no matter who you are, wherever you lean politically, it's you can look at it and recognize that if we don't create environments where we look after each other mm-hmm. and there's folks who have and don't have how this is going to mess it up for everybody, you know? Yeah. And the the answer is not just create more jobs. Like this, this this illusion. Snap a finger. Right. Yeah. It'll do, it'll it'll work itself out. So we're at this critical moment and you know, I get it. So revolving like, as it's always been, these things seem to kind of come around in waves. But I think because of the advent of technology, this is a very unique time, you know, like this rise of fascism and ultra conservatism. Um, We've always been like I've been at events back in the day where someone said something that was challenging, they kick him out of the room or quickly shut him down. So what all those folks do, all those like folks, they started to lean towards men's rights, white rights voices, yeah. and they go, we, we push them like literally into the sewers. Yeah. So in the sewers of the internet, they've all connected and and merged, and they've you know, so you have people who are anti-Semitic and folks who are Jewish that are collaborating. Right? Like you have these weird, like evangelicals signing up with, like, you know, this guy who is the embodiment of everything Christ taught to not be in Trump. All these things, they're aligning. There's no integrity. There's no, the core is like, the core driver is we
0: want to. But a bunch of, and I don't mean to, I don't say this, uh, I'm not saying this to be derogatory necessarily to neo Nazis and skinheads and otherwise (laughs) questionable people, but a wounded dog is safer amongst other wounded dogs, right? Like, yes, like we, we, and yeah. we are in innately, uh, we're, we're tribal in the sense that like our evolutionary biology has created a situation where we don't survive alone. We don't survive in the wild alone. We don't generally survive in the world alone. And so we need to have some sort of community. And so if the community that we're in doesn't engage us, right? I might have some crazy views, but if the community won't engage me, even talk to me, and just demeans me every time I even express these views, I'm going to go find somebody else that agrees with me. And then somewhere along the way, you're going to find somebody who also has a crazy idea, and you have a crazy idea, and they can amplify each other. And I think this is what's given rise to... um, uh, all the support that UKIP you, you got in in the UK around the Brexit mm-hmm. vote, uh, mm-hmm. around Trump, because mm-hmm. if I'm a if I'm a poor uh, or working class white person in the South in in the US, and I don't understand the the mechanics of the macro environment that have created this globalized situation where my jobs have actually left this country from manufacturing and they've gone to uh, other countries, and the fact that we uh, I, I have to go into a Walmart, which is an American company, but I have to buy a whole bunch of stuff that's made in China, yeah, right? Yeah, and that I couldn't yeah, afford yeah. to buy that same stuff. It was made in America because the economics wouldn't allow for that because I don't make enough money. Yeah. That, that most people don't think uh, at that abstract a level because they're so busy day to day just you know trying to survive. Yeah. So now I see someone like Trump who's breaking it down. He's making it simple. He's at least talking to me. He doesn't seem like an elitist politician or whatnot. And... I mean, Trump doesn't give a shit for any other human being. I'm, I'm fully um, sort of cognizant of that, but he at least appears yes. to that to that to, to that person. Yes. I, I could see a number of people, and I, I don't know if there's any actual numbers, but I wonder how many people actually were so upset and pissed off with the DNC for uh, basically pulling the rug out from under Bernie Sanders in the primaries. Um, through its own internal corruption, putting Hillary up there and and all these people that came into the Democratic Party who had no interest in supporting it prior to Sanders arriving, probably, I'm sure some number of them said, to hell with you, you know, Trump and Sanders were essentially talking to the same constituency. They were appealing to different angels in our nature, but they were talking to many of the same people. And so you elitist Washington politician aren't even talking to me. And you, you are, and I think the same things happen with, with Ford here, right? There are enough people that have concerns with immigration or where their jobs are going or real mm-hmm. estate prices mm-hmm. or all of this stuff. And some guy who keeps talking about gravy trains and I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for you, the, the, you know, the, 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 little guy and whatnot. I don't even understand what's going on here, but I at least understand the words coming out of your mouth. So you have my vote. Yeah. Right. And, and, yep. and so if we don't at least talk to people that we don't, share a common opinion with then that opinion goes about its way and it'll find its way to you know um surface somewhere else right like and i just think it's such a shame and i just kind of back to this topic of men and i know we're coming up on like almost two and a half hours here holy shit i thought we'd have nothing to talk about (laughs) so and and i will give you sort of full credit i think there's this snowball that um started rolling downhill um soon after i met you where i realized a few things kind of clicked for me and that Mm. was if you look at the world and if you look at corporate exploitation mm. of impoverished countries, if you look at tyrannical governments, mm-hmm. if you look at toxic uh, behavior in workplaces, uh, uh, you know, where, you know, uh, executives and managers will try and exploit female you know, colleagues and whatnot. If you look at violence in the streets, if you look at um, you know, religious terrorism, uh, whether it be in the name of uh, uh, Islam or, or any other religion, mm-hmm. there's enough violence being perpetrated by nationalist Hindus in India now, which is just bizarre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, 99% of the time or 96% of the time that that violence is being perpetrated, it's men. Mm-hmm. And it's generally young men And they might have old men behind them egging them on, but it's generally young men, many of whom may not have families, um, or if they do, they're disenfranchised or unemployed and whatnot. So there's a number of socioeconomic factors at play. But the one common thing, wherever you go in the world, whatever the situation is, they're men. Mm -hmm. And 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 Mm -hmm. kind of coming out of that, I kind I came to this kind of hypothesis that I believe all people are broken to some degree, but I believe men are uniquely broken. Mm-hmm. In, in the degree. And I think I'd share this with you. But I think we had sort of a semantic difference on this, but I think some men might have a hairline fracture. Some may have a compound fracture, mm-hmm. but everybody mm-hmm. is broken to some extent. Mm-hmm. And if we could just fix the situation of young boys being given, you know, the tools you've, you know, you, that you work so hard to, to kind of impart on people around emotional intelligence and empathy, if they could have a conversation with each other, if they could have somebody say, Hey, you know what? It's okay to cry. Or you know what? That thing that you think is really interesting and that could be knitting or arts and crafts yeah, or whatnot. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, yeah. actually really cool. Yeah. Right. Um, if we could get to these young boys in every corner of the, of the world and just give them a stronger sense of self and separate being a uh, man or woman from masculine and feminine, because yeah. those like the, the gender dynamics are two different things. You can be an alpha male, but have be very empathetic yes. at the same time. too. Yes. 100%. If we can fix this in one place, in some controlled way um, or in some microcosm. And we can figure out how that worked and learn from it and apply it to the next and the next. Albeit, I think religion has, um, I mean, that's this whole separate podcast. I think in, (laughs) in large part, religion has done a lot of incredible things for humanity, but I think it, much of it has become so toxic that it's almost not serving as much of its use anymore. Mm-hmm. But I th- regardless, at the end of the day, it's not women doing these things. They, they might be complicit in it. They might be helping along the way, yep. but it's men. Yep. We fix we fix men. We fix the situation of men. We fix the conflict that we insel- inside ourselves have as men. Most of these problems slowly just dissipate. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but no. I, I, I don't think that – I don't think that the market crash in 2008 that wiped out trillions of dollars in wealth and people's homes and whatnot would have happened if it wasn't for broken men. I don't think that all of this um, jihadi violence that happens around the world would happen if it wasn't for broken men that have legitimate grievances in some cases and other cases just like to see the world burn. We solve solve the situation of men that brings us all together, which is half the world's planet. We have made significant headroom to – Solve the world's ills.
1: Absolutely, man. And and again, it comes back down to being in this place where when you hear words like in well said, like what you said, the reaction can be, yeah, you're right. And I got it. What can I do? How can I be a part of this? Or again, fear, shame, move into a place of defensiveness. It becomes then aggressive. Like I'm being attacked. I've got a mm-hmm. counterattack, right? And rather than sitting in, that moment like i think these folks these like men's rights white rights folks i don't think they have a mirror in their house (laughs)
0: they They have a lot of windows they have never
1: looked in a mirror once but they have a hell ton of windows yes man and that's that's the challenge right it's like so how do i the challenge for me right now is how do i invite people into a place of accountability of wanting to repair not just again like you said broken men i think to a degree a lot of us are broken right? One way or another. Some of us, it's more critical. Like, like you said, um, the difference is inviting you into a place where you recognize that it's a conversation of us, not us versus them. Like my repair is tied to your repair. My healing is tied to a collective community's healing, you know? Uh, and so that, that is the critical juncture that we're at. And I think that, you know, when, um, when we're faced with this idea unfortunately we we're seeing this kind of out of fear this backlash into return to this n- this negative idea of the alpha male which mm-hmm. is about strength which is about don't be a pussy and like no let's just stop listening to these like people like me like I've been called mangina so many times on the internet like this idea of like this guy is like trying wow. to weaken us as men like no it's like this is this is true strength manhood to me is is you know the, the measure of a man is not what we can demonstrate, what we can um, produce, or what we own. The measure of a man is how we serve, how we give, how we live. And I think that we can be models to each other. The challenge is, and I agree with you one gajillion percent, that young boys, it is critical to do that work with young boys. The challenge is, it has to happen in all stages of the life cycle. Yes, yeah. Because... A person like me that comes in and does the one-and-done talk, the influence that his father or an elder in the community or the sports figure who's part of that military complex, that sports culture, all these different influences are on that kid. And it's there's a story that a friend of mine at Tuval Dinner, who's out in Edmonton, who does work around uh, healthy masculinities as well, he tells the story of a colleague of, of his who does social change work? And uh, she had a young boy. Um, and this guy went to school one year, um, having had a summer of awakening and hearing all these things and thinking about social justice. And that, yeah, I had all these things. And he came to, so he started like, a, I think it was he started at high school. And he came back after his, like, you know, after a couple of days at this new school and he was mad at his mom. He's like, like, you've ruined high school for me. Because, like, all I can see is how everyone is shitty, you know? Like, the young guys suck and people are racist or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like, it's transphobic, homophobic. It's everywhere, you know? And it's like, the challenge is we have to work with young boys. But the problem becomes when we tell them that. When we say, you're the generation. Like, you're the hope. Because that's a lot of weight to put. That on That is, yeah. This, like, I've got to, I've got to reverse all this. And um, yes, <laughs> yes, you do. But it's not only on you. And I'm going to do that work because I'm as a man in my 40s or my 30s or 50s or whatever. I got your back. I'm modeling it. You're not alone in this. Yeah, yeah. You're not going into the woods having to chop down a path. I'm going to help you chop down that path. And it's going to look different for everyone. There's not just one way to being a man. Nope. There's a thousand different ways. Yeah. But it can be in a way where it's not at the expense of, it's not about like being this gold mining company coming in and like consuming and destroying the land and pillaging the land. It can be in a way where we contribute to our community, to the fabric of our community. And it it's our own humanity that expands as well as those of others around us. Cause I remember I did this talk at a high school uh, in Oakville and this young woman came up to me and she's like, I used to use that rhetoric of, and I agree. Like I, I believe that you need, like Jack Layton had this line. He said, always believe, always have a dream that will last beyond your lifetime. Hmm. So a dream that's bigger than you. Right. Like you might have dreams like having a career, having a house, having a family and kids. And these are attainable things that will happen like a degree in four years or a family or whatever. But there are things that will, that are bigger than you, bigger than me, that unfortunately this issue of misogyny or racism, these things will continue beyond us and unfortunately probably beyond the life of your kids. Yeah. But we can contribute to a culture that contributes to a culture that contributes to a generation that someday can maybe achieve that. And I want to believe that and I want to yeah. work towards that kind of world. Um. And so I told that I I was saying to this this group of high school students, like, you know, you can make, like, you can take these words and start to take that action. And she came up to me afterwards, this one student waited for everyone to leave. And she's like, you know, I hear what you're saying, but she told me some stories about how not just the men in her lives, but the women, the, the young women in the campus, the, the high school were shitty. And she's like, my generation sucks. We suck like this idea that we're this golden generation that will make the change. And yes, you're seeing you're seeing young people who are brave and courageous and progressive and 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 fighting and championing causes. But it can't be like, okay, good luck with that. You know, like I remember a friend of mine went to a meet you rally in I think it was in Montreal and there was an old, you know, business guy in a suit that saw my friend Hannah. She had like a a sign, like some sort of slogan on her right. on her poster. And the old guy was like, "Give him hell, right?" And her mentality was, "Thanks, but why aren't you coming to the rally? Like, you can give him hell too. Yeah, and maybe he does it in his own way. Maybe, sure, yeah, like, yeah, Maybe he, you know, he he f- he donates or he does his own thing. He he shows up in his community as an executive or whatever. But in that moment, she's like, like I need you to come too. Like we need each other to be, right. you know, to advocate for each other. And so." I think it's it's on us at any stage of the life cycle whether you're a grandfather an elder in the community uh an executive who's been in the field for a long time someone who you know you don't have necessarily, you think you don't think you have a lot of influence because a lot of us go well what can I do you you can move mountains man Yeah, just I know. like every day we do we contribute to it
0: we're we're told though unfortunately just uh every day that we don't have enough power or that, you know, we don't, we can't make enough difference. And yet, and then you'll flip through some inspiring words on Instagram and say, (laughs) everyone can make a change. Right. So like, which one, which one do you believe? But uh, you know, I've, I've had this sort of tiny little, you know, hypothetical question or thought experiment where like you have an opportunity to raise a billion dollars for something. Right. Mm. Um, What's actually more powerful, like going to one, uh, uh, you know benevolent billionaire who 's got a billion dollars kicking around and say hey i 've got a billion dollars for this cause let 's call this cause like building a whole bunch of schools sure. uh, you know somewhere yep. um you know here's here 's a billion dollars, and so now you 've got a billion dollars or you somehow find a way to raise one dollar from a billion people what 's mm-hmm. actually more powerful? the billion dollars is still the same thing, mm-hmm. but one billionaire can never match the the influence of all of those people all at once, right? Yes, because they're, yes, act- they're actually making yes. a, a concerted social conscious decision to make a change, right? And I think it's on all of us. And I've been struggling with this too, admittedly. Like I've been I've been making music for years. I've been writing spoken word poetry, performing. I've been very sort of vocal in, in my own circles and social media on sure. things that ail me. But, you know, at the same time, then eventually you kind of feel like a real hypocrite at points. Like you're just a social media activist, which you're not really – not really doing anything so i've been trying to figure out like what is what is my potential contribution to 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 making this better and that's i think part of where you know this podcast and these conversations are coming up right because mm-hmm. i think that uh, you know i'd like for you know these ideas to be able to scale and they're not my ideas i'm just a vessel for much of the things that i'm thinking and saying i've heard from other people over the years as i've heard things from you mm. but if someone you know listens to this and walks away you know and just something else in their brain that day they think you know what I need to reevaluate this. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and I think if we start there, we're, we're all in a better place. And I've, I've had a number of moments like that of self-reflection for me. uh, I've got a long way to go. Right. You know, as, as many of us do, but Mm -hmm. um, Jeff, I mean, you have been beyond gracious with your time. (laughs) Uh, And I really, I hope that I haven't worn you down and that you'll be back at some point. Yeah. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, There's uh, some important stuff here. Um, Where can people find out more about you?
1: Um, if you go to HireUnlearning.com, dot uh, com, there's a lot of it's it's the site has a lot of older pieces. I'm working on a lot of writing right now and figuring out how to put that out into the world, new new content. But you go to HireUnlearning.com, dot com, you can see links to my uh, TEDx talks, uh, different uh, spaces where I've given interviews and talks, like print and audio. Uh, you can find me on social media, Jeff J E F F. Pereira, P-E-R-E-R-A, on Twitter, or all the different things. I'm kind of on Instagram, but still trying to figure that all out. Um, But yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much uh, for being here, Jeff. Thank you, man. All right. And that's a wrap.
1: Nice. Nice.
0: If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, There are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, Tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.